1: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Ryan Nicodemus is on vacation this week, but fear not. Alabama's here. TK Coleman is hey, here. Hey, hey. We have a very special guest. Welcome back. Peter Rollins is yeah. here today. Oh, thank Woo. you. Thank you. Oh. So, the rest of our team is here as well. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, and Emma and Jess are here in spirit. So is Podcast Sean. As always, we have a special episode for you today. I don't even know where to start, Peter. I know I want to talk to you about misery. Yes. I want to talk to you today about trauma, maybe even pessimism
2: a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk all about- the happy things. <laughs> yes. happy podca- I always get drawn in for the sad podcast, <laughs> the ones about misery and depression. So,
3: but you make them so light and yes. easy to talk about. It's why we love bringing you back.
2: Well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've
1: really been looking forward for the longest time, so I'm going to do my best today to shut up as much as possible. <laughs> <clears throat> That's difficult for me. I, I talk <laughs> one day a week, and it's on Tuesdays. Uh, yes. yeah. The other six days, I abstain completely from talking. I'm basically a monk. Yeah. And uh, But today, on Tuesdays, when we record these, I talk a lot. So the live stream can participate as well. You can join the chat, drop your questions and comments. We'll get to them. Malabama is collecting them diligently. But I've been wanting to get you and TK in a room for years now. The two of you have been our favorite podcast guests from our audience. In fact, TK has been a favorite guest so much we've made him a
2: co-host I was of going the podcast. To say, I was going to say, I thought you, it, was going, it was a battle between the two of us and you went for TK, not me. Uh, you won. <laughs> you won this this round. Well, you might be next. So <laughs> yeah. You might be next. <laughs> we're, we're, just, we're heaping on more. Everything yeah. we do is blanketed by
1: irony. <laughs> so I'm predicting by the end of the year we have like seven co-hosts. <laughs> it's a yeah. nightmare for me. All right. Anyway. Let's start with some questions. I think that'll ease us into this conversation today. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know you're a Patreon subscriber, by the way, and we will prioritize your message. Big shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. You keep the podcast 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. Our first question today is from Jessica in Denver, Colorado.
0: My question may sound
3: silly, and before I ask it, I want you to know that I get so much value from your work. But I sometimes wonder why. Why are you so compelled to help people who are wired this way? What is your biggest challenge, and what is your biggest takeaway?
1: I'm interested in the answer to this question. And Jessica, by the way, I love this question. Let me tell you why I love the question. Because it's a difficult question. I can make it sound easy. There's a narrative overlay where, uh, oh, I want to help people or or whatever. But really, the question is the why behind that. You're in it for the money? <laughs> <laughs> well. And the fame? <laughs> Advertisement suck part. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that would be true if, if we just peppered this whole thing with Meh, advertisements. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm not allergic to money either, yeah. though. Yep. Yeah. And so I don't want to renounce that. I don't even want to renounce advertisements. I'm just kind of grossed out by them.
4: I mean, I am sponsored by Bob's Auto Mechanics today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'd be interested. I'll give my sort of narrative overlay of this whole thing, Jessica, because I know you're asking me and Ryan isn't here today. But I'm interested in some different answers here. So I think we'll get a bit existential here with Peter in a moment. But TK, I thought we would start with you. Why do you do what you do? Are you... You help people. You feel a desire to create things that help people. Why do you do what you do?
4: One of the things I said last week when we were talking about why we decided to do this is a principle that I govern my life by when it comes to decision making. And that is, in the absence of any logically or morally compelling reason to do otherwise, always do what feels good to you. Always do what feels fun to you. Now, there are some logical reasons for why something might feel fun and you say, I'm not gonna do that. There are some morally compelling reasons for why something might give you pleasure and you say, I'm not gonna do that. But in the absence of that, you do what brings you joy. And so for me, work like this, helping people, it's not because I'm a saint. It's not because one day I was busy doing something else and then the voice of God said, TK, I want you to go podcast and help people. It was, no, I've always enjoyed work that was like this, even in a different context. I've always enjoyed advocating for other people's possibilities. I've I've always, you know, you know, I've I've heard it said before that one of the best ways to figure out what makes you come alive is to figure out what pisses you off, what irritates you, what annoys you, because that gives you valuable information about what you're hardwired to change the kinds of problems you're likely to enjoy solving. And when I was a kid, I always got irritated when I saw someone who had more possibilities than they believed in. And whenever I saw someone with a self-defeating belief and living a life where they were stressed out, overwhelmed, sad all the time because they didn't see the possibilities they had, I always enjoyed the game of trying to convince them that they had the permission and the power to be the predominant creative force in their own lives. And so I'm playing that game. I enjoy doing this kind of work. I'm not convinced that like it's the only thing that I could do or it's the one right thing for me to do or that it's morally good. It's just, it's what I enjoy. It's like playing basketball or playing the piano.
1: Pete, I brought you on the podcast a few months ago to talk about suffering, mm-hmm. another joyous topic. Yeah. And what I've learned is that healing is often at the terminus of suffering or, or suffering can lead to healing in some way and so i think if i were to give a, a sort of answer that comports with how i feel today is it feels good to see people heal and sometimes mm-hmm. when i create mm-hmm. something it helps someone heal their relationship with their stuff their relationship with their clinging their relationship with other people their relationship with money and healing those relationships not fixing them not repairing them but actually seeing that healing within mm-hmm. someone and it feels good for me so this isn't completely altruistic either. Mm-hmm. And I want to be clear about that. What I do isn't, oh, I'm just serving the greater good. Yes, but it also feels good to serve the greater mm-hmm. good in some respect. But I'm interested, why do you do what you do? Because you're a, a radical theologian, you're a philosopher, <laughs> and you sometimes share some things that are considered to be controversial. And it seems to me to be
2: easier to just not share those things at all. Yes. Oh uh, yeah, it's a good question. I was first of all thinking, what do I do? <laughs> and then I'll have to, then what is, why do I do it? Um, but you've said it very well. Actually, I'll have to write that down next time someone asks me what I do. <laughs> radical theologian philosopher. Um, <laughs> you know, I was reminded there's a, of a story of a guy who um, goes on a, a sea voyage and he washes up on this uh, shore and he goes into this town and he starts to preach and he preaches this message. And at first... Lots of people listen to him, but after he's been there for a few months, he becomes, you know, pretty new people stop paying attention, but still this guy keeps preaching his message. And eventually someone comes up to him and says, you know, like, no one's listening to you. Why do you keep singing this song? Why do you keep preaching this message when it's obvious that nobody really is paying attention? And he said, well, at first I thought I was doing it for the people. But he said, then I realized that the message I preach is for myself. And that's kind of how I feel about a lot of our work is -hmm. that our work is often a way of self-healing, you know, reminding ourselves of something or speaking to some dimension of ourselves. So, for example, if I'm always talking about how to embrace lack, how to kind of like uh, get free from frenetic pursuits of kind of whatever, I go like, well, maybe I'm the, I'm the, the person who needs to receive the message. Just like uh, if you write a love letter, uh, often you don't even have to send it because you think you're writing it for somebody else, but you're really writing it for yourself. So, And even if you do send it, you probably read it 10 times, 20 times. The other person might read it once because the love letter always, Lacan says, reaches its destination because its destination is not the other as such, mm. but, but in a sense, it's yourself. It's beautiful.
1: I think about, I, I teach a writing class, howtowritebetter.org. It's an online writing class. And what I learned, I started teaching that a decade ago, back in 2012. And I noticed, especially the first two or three years, my writing improved dramatically yeah. from teaching yes. the writing yes. class. Yes. Yeah. Because in a way, I was, I was beginning to, I had to pause. It's like a baker who bakes a cake and they don't know how they do it. If they need to give someone else the recipe, they have to stop and say, I need this much flour. I need to do it in this sequence. I need to bake it at this temperature, this much sugar, this much chocolate goes into the cake. But they may not know that before, and what they do is they start to refine it based on the experience of actually teaching that to someone else. Yes. So in a way, by teaching this to other people, I think the person that has improved and healed most is me. Yes. And if other people go out there, and they, I, I've noticed that people tend to share what we do on the podcast. That's why we we do all of these TikTok clips and Instagram clips is because as you start to share
2: something... Do we have to do some dance TikToks? Yeah, theater? we're going to kind of floss. It's going to be great. Okay, <laughs> all right. You're going to have to teach me the moves because I watch a lot of them, but I'm not very good at them. So
1: <laughs> Wait till the end of this. You're yeah. going to look great on TikTok. We're going to remix just that moment right
2: there. <laughs> no, no.
1: Anyway, Jessica, I'd love to send you a copy of our book, Love People use things. It's about healing the seven essential relationships in our lives. Ryan and I wrote this uh, What well, we finished it during the pandemic. And what I realized in a way, this was a pandemic preparation manual, but in the sense that we all are going through our own individual pandemics. We have all of these tragedies with our finances. So healing the relationship with our money, healing our relationship with our values, with our self, with other people, with our stuff, and so, I'd love to send you a audiobook version. If you like our podcast, you'll enjoy the audiobook of Love. People use things, or if you want the book, book or the ebook, I'd be happy to send those to you as well. Jessica, Alabama will reach out to you and get you a copy of that book. Our next question today is from Deborah in Harrisville, North Carolina.
5: How does one um, renegotiate minimalism in his or her life after a, um, a trauma incident or disability? I was perfectly, quote unquote, normal, was on vacation with the, my family after six hours of being on an airplane by the next day. I've had some, I have something called malde de Barquemont syndrome. It is a rare neurological disease. That may or may not go away. And right now there is no cure. Uh, As a minimalist for the past eight years and following um, almost all of your content, I've had to renegotiate my minimalism and unfortunately add a cane or add uh, a chair in the bathtub, renegotiate with my furniture Uh, because I bang into it, because my brain is always swaying, bobbing and bouncing. How do you go about altering, changing, re-imaging your minimalism when you're going through something traumatic? And that could be for the rest of your life, especially as one ages, going through not just the physical issues, but the mental issues as well.
1: Deborah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you are suffering right now. I know how difficult that can be. The, the last four years of my life has involved a whole lot of suffering health problems. And I think I'm finally turning out of that, but it's exposed a whole lot. What I've learned is that often misery teaches us how to let go let go of the clinging that we have. Everything should be right. Everything should be perfect. Everything should be this way. In fact, you even hear it in the spirit of her question. She said, I was quote unquote normal. We cling to what normal might be. Well, I have some news for you. Nobody is normal. I'm not normal. TK is not normal. Peter's not normal. is definitely not normal.
3: Definitely not.
1: (laughs) And yet, what is normal? Normal is just the average of all people, right? And so- yes, you might not be normal, but needing to be normal becomes its own prison. I I need to feel as though I'm going to be this particular way, meeting this criteria, meeting this set of guidelines. And this is exactly why I wanted to have Peter on the podcast. Uh, On your podcast, by the way, the Fundamentalists, you often talk about some fairly esoteric or philosophical viewpoints that I think are different from what we hear on mainstream podcasts or in mainstream news, you take a much deeper dive. And I've this, this year, I've been reading a lot of Schopenhauer. In uh-huh. fact, I'm going to talk about him quite a bit on the More About Less segment. I got, I got some reading for you from Schopenhauer, and I want to talk about misery because it seems that Schopenhauer believed that misery was sort of, in many ways, the default state And that we're all going to experience some sort of misery, as Deborah is experiencing right now. And from that misery, it often leads to trauma. But those traumas also show us how to let go. I'll give you one quick example. My very first memory as a child is of my father abusing my mother. And it's not that I I treat women well because of my father, but I've learned to not treat them poorly because of him. And because of that trauma that was instilled in me early on, it showed me how to let go uh, of a particular behavior, even before I picked up a behavior like that. And consequently, I've never treated women poorly because of that trauma. And so what I would say here is sometimes the misery, sometimes the traumas that we experience is, well, sometimes that trauma leads us to a position in which we can finally let go. One other thing for you. Happiness is a byproduct of wanting less. That's the biggest thing I've learned over the last four years. Now, you might say, well, how could you were already one of the minimalists before these four years, right? You you must have you must have learned that a long time ago. Yeah, I think I did. But it really solidified it for me because before I wanted things to be ideal, I wanted things to be perfect or I wanted them to be a particular way. And I held on to that idol in a way. Here's how things will be. And in a way, that's just another form of consumerism. Because, oh, my life will be perfect as soon as I buy the mansion, the car, have the right job title, the kids, the marriage, the pets, the expensive suits, the cufflinks, the nice shoes, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As soon as I have these things, then my life will be complete. That's the ideology of being completed through purchases. Well, you can shift that ideology to other things. If I have the perfect relationships or if mm. I have the perfect uh, career, if I have the perfect amount of getting rid of things as well, it becomes another kind of consumerism. And all these things do is they get us out of the moment. The constant forward
4: looking mm. takes me out of right now. I think the reason that happiness is wanting less is because that wanting less arises out of a more fundamental insight, which is that abundance doesn't consist in what I possess, but rather in what possesses me. It's not about how much money I have. It's about what kind of mission drives me, right? And when you have that sense of aliveness, you realize, oh, that is abundance. And I can actually enjoy this space. And I don't need to fill it up with stuff because the space is no longer threatening. It's sort of like the person who learns how to enjoy silence. Once you learn how to enjoy silence, you aren't free to do without a bunch of words because you have a negative philosophy about words, but because you no longer see the silence as something to escape, you see the silence as a form of beauty unto itself. And it's the same with space. Space is not merely the absence of stuff. It's the presence of aliveness, of energy, and those things exist within us. And once you realize that, you don't need a bunch of things to be happy. And those things that often make us
1: miserable, so let's pivot to misery for a second, Peter. Mm. Yep. Can, can we talk about about misery because I'm just so fascinated. i don't I think Schopenhauer really fascinated me because he mixed the Eastern and Western philosophy, yeah. and he did so in a way that was really stark. People have called him the darkest philosopher mm. in history, mm. yeah, and part of that is because of the way that he looked at misery,
2: yeah. I mean, Schopenhauer was probably the first philosopher to systematically give a very good answer to why abundance doesn't work and why um, our constant striving for things uh, never is satisfying. And if I just give a little bit of background to that and then we can jump in is, so Schopenhauer was very influenced by the philosopher Immanuel Kant. So the two big philosophers before Schopenhauer uh, were Immanuel Kant and then Hegel, who was a contemporary of, of Schopenhauer's. Schopenhauer hated Hegel. Right. <laughs> uh, he uh, he would put on classes at the same time as Hegel to compete with him. But <laughs> Hegel was massive, like massive. He was the most famous philosopher ever. And Schopenhauer, nobody knew who he was. So like five people would show up to his classes and everybody would show up to Hegel. But Schopenhauer was just that kind of guy. So he just hated Hegel. So he... um. He was very interested in Kant. And in a nutshell, one of the things Kant says is that we experience the world um, through certain filters. So we don't experience the world as it is. We experience it through space and time. We experience it through quantity and quality. So Kant brilliantly showed that our brains are a type of filter through which reality comes. And therefore, there's a dimension of reality that you can't you can't experience because, because of our brain structure. But then Schopenhauer, who likes Kant a lot, he says, "Well, actually, you can get to the heart of everything. Uh, there's there is something that is pulsating through the the galaxies and the world and our flesh and this mug. There's something that's pulsating through it, and we can know it. And he called it will, right? And will." is this, you don't experience it, you can't see it. It's a, it's almost like if I look for Shakespeare in a book of Hamlet, you can't find Shakespeare in Hamlet. But Shakespeare is all over Hamlet. Like Shakespeare is in every part of Hamlet. So in the same way, he's saying you can't see will, you can't taste it, you can't touch it, but it's in everything. And it is this will to life, he calls it. Um, you know, Nietzsche did something else with it, but this pulsating drive that's even in this mug that's even in this table uh, and this is by the way before quantum before you know quantum mechanics before we understood about kind of molecular structures because mm-hmm. we know that this is alive now we know this mug is alive with with molecular and subatomic uh, you know uh, forces but Schopenhauer's saying everything is alive with this pulsating drive this drive and we can know it and we experience it. And it's that drive that gets us to always want, 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 want more, want this, want that. But it's also what leads to misery. And this is the thing is because nothing will ever satisfy it. Nothing will ever get rid of that insatiable drive. And the more we try to feed it, the bigger its stomach becomes and Mm. the more uh, anxious we'll become. So that's, that's why Schopenhauer says misery is a part of reality. This is kind of Schopenhauer's God, is will, this pure force in everything.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a quote from, this is his book, uh, "Counsels and Maxims. And this is just for, from section nine here. We'll put a link to this book in the show notes as well. I'm going to talk about it more on the added value segment here in a bit. To be self-sufficient, to be, all, to be in all of oneself, to want for nothing, That is assuredly the chief qualification for happiness. There is no more mistaken path to happiness than worldliness, revelry, high life, for the whole object of it is to transform our miserable existence into a succession of joys, delights, and pleasures, a process process which cannot fail to result in disappointment and delusion. And that's the thing about that's the reason when I say advertisements suck is because there's a fundamental grossness to advertising for me in that it's seductive. And something that is seductive in that way always promises more than it can deliver. And that's what happiness does in many many contexts of happiness, right? People think of happiness, they equate it to pleasure, you know, but then the Stoics might say eudaimonia is, is happiness, right? And so Happiness becomes this word that is so full of everyone else's definitions that it has been rendered essentially useless. And yet we chase this thing that is meaningless at this point.
2: And and the the brief pleasures that we get, because there are pleasures in life, for Schopenhauer don't outweigh the sufferings. So he has a great quote where he says, um, he says, the pleasure of the predator is never outweighed by the pain of the prey. So, in other words, like the lion might get a little bit of pleasure from eating the the deer, but the deer is getting a lot of suffering, you know? So we might get a little bit of pleasure from our mobile phone, but the suffering that went into making that mobile phone is greater than the pleasure we might get out of it. So there's this And the
1: suffering that is the byproduct of overuse of drugs or or you know, phones, technology, food, whatever it might be. It also leads to suffering. That that, that that very pleasure that we seek often leads to our own suffering.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and Schopenhauer, the amazing thing about this is this kind of can seem like an obvious point, but we're kind of blind to it. We're completely blind to it. Uh, we are so um, seduced by the idea that something will work, some relationship, some product. And... What Schopenhauer does beautifully is he begins to kind of pull back the curtain. And by the way, this is why he's so key to thinkers like uh, Nietzsche and Freud and Jung and others, because they take this idea of will and it becomes the unconscious, which we'll talk about at some point, I'm sure. But um, Schopenhauer reveals that we are, and even Adam Smith, by the way, knew this when he talked about the invisible hand of the market, and he said that capitalism runs uh, he's basically, he said capitalism runs by this fantasy that if you're richer, you're going to be happier. And Adam Smith himself said, I mean, that's, that's a complete lie. It, like, it's not true. Um, there's a certain point where you have your needs met and you have enough money to do, you know, kind of things. But when you get beyond that, there's a certain misery. And when you don't get to that level, there's a certain misery, right? And even Adam Smith realized that there's a kind of a, a fiction that we all give ourselves to that causes us misery, but that we um, find ourselves unable to to pull away from. And Schopenhauer does offer a cure. Like you mentioned it there, like Schopenhauer's cure is an interesting one. He was, as you mentioned, very influenced by kind of Eastern mysticism. Uh, This was a point in history when the Upanishads and Buddhist texts as well were being translated into German and he was reading these texts. So he was very influenced by that, that tradition. But he basically says the way to win is not to to pursue more happiness, more parties, more pleasure, more stuff, but to uh, renounce the game to say i'm gonna I'm gonna withdraw myself from this frenetic
4: pursuit. I love that. I always say, don't hate the player mm. don't hate the game. love the fact that you can opt out of it all and uh-huh. you can create your own games right And one of the things that we talk about a lot here is they there's the way of consumption and the way of creativity. The way of consumption is oriented around how can I get something from you? How can I take from what other people have created and and try to be happy that way? And it never works, you know? Mm -hmm. Whereas the way of creativity is, it's not wealth by gain, it's wealth by the dynamic expression of will. How can I influence the world? How can I express myself playfully? And I think that's what it's better to give than to receive is all about. It's If you go about life trying to consume, trying to be happy by getting stuff, you're in that receiving mode and you just never win. Whereas if you say, you know what? I'm going to be a giver. I'm going to playfully create. And that's when you win the game that you create. And a good example of this, like a good example of what what Schopenhauer is meaning
2: is if you imagine a TV show like uh, Desperate Housewives or something like that, right? Um, If you watch it because you like it, Right, that then that you are offering viewing figures and there'll be advertisements. If you're watching it because you're mocking it and because you get enjoyment out of disliking it and laughing at all the people who watch it unironically, <laughs> you're still watching it, which then is counted as a viewing figure, which mm-hmm. contributes to the advertising. So whether mm-hmm. you watch it ironically or unironically, you're contributing to it. The only way to get rid of a show like, say, Desperate Housewives, I don't even know if that show still exists or what it is, but the first one that came to mind. But the only way is to obediently disinvest from it. And if enough people obediently disinvest from it, then it can no longer function. And so the, ironically, some of these shows work primarily on the fiction that there's a non-ironic viewer. And you can imagine, let's imagine a show where there's literally no non-ironic viewers. Everyone is watching the Kardashians, Ironically, everyone's watching them thinking that there's a non-ironic person who really wants to be the Kardashians. That protest watching is still feeding the system. The only way is to disinvest from it. That's a Schopenhauerian
4: idea. (laughs) I've always felt, by the way, that Paris Hilton is one of the smartest people in the entertainment business because she has mastered the art of gamifying and monetizing other people's love for pointing out how stupid they think she is. That's
2: it, exactly. I yeah. mean, it's genius. Yeah. There, there's a great, if you, if anybody wants to look it up, my favorite comedians are Mitchell and Webb from the UK and they have a, a little sketch and it's kind of like that, um, what was that show that that Trump used to do? You're fired. The or, Apprentice. The Apprentice. Celebrity Apprentice yeah. So the, it's basically behind the scenes of The Apprentice And they're saying like, uh, you know, they're talking about it and they're saying this isn't working because what they do is they do a real apprentice with talented people going for prestigious jobs and it's boring. And one of them says, what would it be like if we got relatively idiotic people kind of competing for not really very good jobs. I go like, well, that would be interesting, but no one would watch it. And they go, well, people would watch it ironically. And it kind of goes, and then basically makes the point if we can make a show where everybody's ironically watching and it doesn't matter. We'll still make a fortune. And I think that's how, it, how a lot of these TV shows work, you know.
1: I'm going to bring mm-hmm. this back home to Deborah's question here. We're talking about misery and we've gotten philosophical with her, but yeah. I'd like to get practical mm-hmm. in a way as well. So I would say this, sometimes it has to do with some of the stories that we tell ourselves. Like, I can't be a minimalist if I need a cane. I have to get some extra things that, well, no, a minimalist would get a cane if they need a cane, right? A minimalist, if they need an extra chair, they get the chair. And so I wouldn't worry about that. As a minimalist, everything I own serves a purpose or it brings me joy, brings the joy out of me. The joy is not in the thing, it's always in me, but it can amplify that joy that's already in me. And so some of those things are just useful, right? serve some sort of purpose in my life. And we're not deprivationists. And so it's not about eschewing certain things and having only this curated list of 100 items and then I'll be complete happy. I'll be a certified minimalist. The key here is the things that you own serve you in some way. And the truth is, as your life changes, you might need things that you didn't need before. And vice versa, the things you needed before, my toys that served me really well when I was seven years old, don't serve me anymore, and so I was willing to let go. And while that seems like a absurd example, I think that is true with anything else that we bring into our lives. We often hold on to them well into their obsolescence. In yeah. fact, we do this sub, we do do this uh, segment on the podcast, on the private podcast called "Obsolete Objects," where we talk about things that used to serve us, and then we talk about letting go of them when they stop serving us. And so, for Deborah, TK, if you could bring us home here, do you have anything? that is actionable, any deeper understanding of where she is right now.
4: Yeah, I would say, Deborah, you don't need to negotiate your relationship to minimalism at all. There's nothing to do other than to let go of the expectation that something needs to change, right? Other than you doing what's best for you. Minimalism isn't just about rejecting society telling you what you need to buy. It's also rejecting society's efforts to tell you what you need to throw out. Those are two sides of the same coin. So if society says, you got to buy this new car to be happy, well, you decide if that's a reflection of your preferences and your principles and your priorities. But also if society says, well, you can't have more than five objects or you got to throw that away or you have too much stuff, minimalism says, reject that too, be driven from within. So like Josh said, if you need a cane, if you need anything, if you need a new cabinet, you need a new chair, Whatever it is, minimalism is about liberating yourself from externally imposed constraints and allowing your life to be guided from within by your own convictions. Give yourself the permission to be guided by just that. I love that. And
1: giving yourself permission to let go, not just let go of the stuff, but to let go of whatever expectation you had about the way things should be. Deborah, I'm going to send you a copy of our book, Everything That Remains. It's uh, a book that Ryan and I wrote a decade ago now, as we were letting go of some of our past traumas and sorting mm-hmm. through those traumas, understanding the traumas so we could let go. It's a story of these two suit and tie corporate guys who let go of everything, grew up really poor, and then we made it, we were successful. But that was another type of Trauma, And we created our own well-decorated prison cell Mm. that was much harder to break out of because we had constructed it around ourselves. And it created all of this other misery in our lives. We didn't suspect that misery because if I just get this right job, I get the right amount of money, of course it will make me happy. No. It's not that those things made me miserable, but my expectation of happiness is what made me miserable. So if you enjoy our podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version of Everything That Remains. Or if you want the book book or the ebook, book Malabama will reach out to you and she'll uh, she'll get that over to you, Deborah. By the way, you know what time it is, Malabama?
3: Yes, I do. It's 1044. No,
1: no, no. It's uh, time for the lightning round. Oh, uh, This is where we answer your questions uh, from... Well, your text message questions, nine three seven two zero two four six five four. You can text your questions, your comments. Those texts go right to our phone. So we respond to you on the podcast or maybe even via our phone. Olivia has a question for us.
3: How do you avoid the regret of not getting the best souvenirs for your loved ones? After a recent holiday, I came back feeling guilty for not bringing special items to give to relatives that weren't able to go with me.
1: Now, Pete, you probably remember this. We try to do our best during the lightning round to answer questions with a short shareable, less than 140-character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. And you can find all of our minimal maxims in one place, minimalmaxims.com. I have something pithy, and then we can just unpack it Mm -hmm. because I was talking to TK about this yesterday. You had something great on this as well. But here is... So I was walking through my new town that I moved up to in Ventura County, and we were walking around with my wife yesterday and I saw this consignment shop. And I peeked in the window, they were closed. Bex and I were sort of looking like two kids at Christmas in the window. And I saw just so much junk in this consignment shop. And there's this old aphorism that one man's junk is another man's treasure. But I think I'd like to update that for today's standards. And so here's something pithy for you one man's junk. Is usually another man's junk too. Mm-hmm. And so these people were trying to get rid of their things. And occasionally someone might find a treasure in there. But quite often the things that we're holding on to, we continue to hold on to it even though it's junk, thinking, oh, someday someone might get something out of this. But the truth is, most of the things that we have amassed aren't going to add value to most people in our lives. And I think that's certainly true with souvenirs. Whenever we travel somewhere, in fact, I was going to try and get Ryan on the phone to answer this question with us. He's up in Yellowstone right now and he has no phone service. And so I couldn't even get him to phone it in. And uh, anyway,
4: I t- it took me a minute, Hell man. Yeah. It took me a minute. I, I don't want that comedic genius to go unappreciated. I, I, I don't want the audience Can we to think a loud we a lag. And that's <laughs> me. I <laughs> am the lag. I also had a yeah. lag. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just slow, man. But it, it was good. So,
1: so what I'll tell you though is he is collecting something there. It may not be souvenirs. It may not be fridge magnets or postcards or little st- plastic statuettes that are made in China. That was my, the most fun thing when I went to um, Mount Rushmore for the first time. But their entire city is predicated on selling you like made-in-China figurines of Mount Rushmore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what I noticed is that, oh, this is just junk. And we, in the moment, think we want the thing. But after the fact, that desire to possess the thing doesn't just dissipate. But it's completely gone. And we wonder, why did I even want to pick this up in the first place? But you do pick up something different,
4: TK. You want my Pythia or you want me to comment on that? Yeah, that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's get short. Let's get attenuated. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. So my, my Pythia is um, sometimes the, the best gift is a good story. If you think about, this is the unpack. If you think about what, it, what a gift is, it's really a, a form of crystallized appreciation. It, it's an effort to say, I like you. I love you or I see you in the form of an artifact, right? Here's a little golden coin. Here's a pen that I got out of a gift shop. Here's a button. And it's a physical thing that concretizes this intangible sentiment that I feel towards you. And so what makes people appreciate a gift is the thought. That's behind it, which is why we say it's the thought that counts. And we can prove this to ourselves because if you take important days like anniversaries or or Valentine's Day, birthdays, whatever, and I know the importance of these days are all arbitrary, but if you just try to money your way into appreciation by writing people checks or giving them cash, they'll feel cheap. Even if the the money you're giving them exceeds the monetary value of a creative gift. And why is that? because people know the difference between something that requires the input of energy, thought, and time versus you just trying to buy your way out of something or buy your way into a friendship. No one wants to feel like they're being bought. They want to feel like you did something that made you really think about them. So when you take the time to put together a playlist of songs on Spotify, right? TK, this episode is bought to you by not Spotify. And and, and you say here's a playlist of songs that reminded me of you. People say, wow, man, thank you. That means a lot because you really had to think about them and put some time into that even though you spent no money on them versus just buying them something because it was expensive, like you're trying to impress them with a price tag. So how can you use that observation to overcome this fear that when you go out of town, you're not getting something nice for the people that you love? Well, since it's the thought that counts, give them the gift of thought. When you come home, Write them a letter, doesn't have to be more than one page, but take some time to think about an experience that you had, a place that you visited, a conversation that you had, something you observed that made them think of you. And tell them a little story about how you felt like they were with you in spirit while you were on the road and how you saw this clock Or you met this person in a coffee shop and they said something that made you think about them and how much they mean to you and you wish that they could have been there and you hope that maybe one day they'll be able to go there with you in the future. But even if they can't, they were with you through that moment. I guarantee you, people are going to remember something like that much longer than they would a button that they'll eventually throw away. And by the way, if your friendships require you to buy expensive gifts in order to maintain them, the friendship is already dead. Lovely.
2: Can I, long or short? Yes. On <laughs> <laughs> well, this one, I can only do long, short, long, I'm allowed to? Yeah, okay. It can um, be long if it's good. Uh, I want, yes, if it's good. Well, that's not, Josh, not going thing, to man. be good. not do anything with that It's not going to be good. I was thinking of, like when you were talking, uh, there's a very famous phrase by Freud that a lot of people know is, at near the end of his life, he wrote this letter, and in the letter he said, what does a woman want? Right. And there's even a movie called what does, what does Woman Want? or something with Mel Gibson. So this is a famous phrase of Freud, What Does a Woman Want? And um, a lot of people see this as Freud going, just not understanding women or whatever. But he was actually, one way of understanding what he was doing uh, and what he meant by that phrase is he noticed something that was more obvious uh, in feminine structure than masculine structures. And then what uh, later French psychoanalysts did is they... They showed how this question is, what do people want? So what does women want led to? What do men want? What do all of us want? And what Freud noticed, which is very interesting, was he noticed that um, a lot of the women he was talking to, uh, what they desired is what the other desired. So in terms of even fantasy life, men's fantasies are often very uh, solidified, right? Sedimented. So a man might have a certain fantasy women's fantasies were often not so solidified, much more fluid. So, for example, a man might say to his partner, I'd love someone to watch us having sex, right? And the woman might go, I've never thought about that and oh, don't really like the idea. But then she might go, well, I see that you like the thought, so let's whisper about it, let's talk about it, right? And then as they talk about it in discourse, she starts to enjoy the desire that it evokes in him, and then she starts to go, oh, I quite like this idea. And then maybe even they, they do it. And then after they break up, she goes off and this desire is hers now. But, but what was interesting is the, des- the desire for sleeping, with, with having sex when someone's watching, wasn't what she desired. She desired the desire that animated that act. Right. Um, so Freud noticed this and noticed that our, our desires are so interconnected with the desire of the other. And then then men's desire exactly the same. It just kind of plays out in a, in a different way. So all of this to kind of like back up exactly what you're saying is a gift. And somebody bought me a little wooden thing. Oh, sorry. Uh, recently, a little kind of uh, that, uh souvenir that meant a lot because there was desire within it. It yeah. was the object, was the representation, but it represented this, this desire that, that animated it, which is what Lacan calls object, object A. So in terms of this question, all of that comes around to exactly what you're saying is that, it's that what can one do to concretize one's desire? And a letter is a good example. Flowers are a good example because flowers are of no pragmatic value. So why do we like things like flowers? Why do we like things that literally have no use value? Because in a sense, when you, ha- when you give something like this little wooden object I was given, it's got no use value at all. So it kind of, in a sense, is a great receptacle of the desire of the other. Mm. Those are the kind of little objects that are Mm. special.
1: So I I I think where we go with this, Olivia, and thanks for your question, is instead of bringing home souvenirs for people, you should watch them have sex.
2: Yes. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Yes, that's the (laughs) takeaway.
4: Hey, Josh, who was that writer who said something like... uh, Forgive me for writing a letter that's so long I didn't have time to make it short. It's often oh, attributed yes. to to uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. Yeah. Um,
1: and the reason that we do that, it, or the reason that we often write something that is so verbose is because we didn't have time to attenuate it, to edit it, to make it something pithy and short. But what I like about this segment, yeah. it, is, it allows us to do both, yeah. to have something pithy but then also let's expand on it in a way that is meaningful.
2: And my pithy yeah. response is you're too nice. Just forget about everybody else and have a good time. Okay. So that's my short one. The long one was about the desire of the other's desire. But the short one is just just enjoy yourself. Don't worry about them. Let's that's move on stuff.
1: to yeah. let's move on to some social media questions. You can follow The Minimalist on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter at The Minimalist. You can follow Peter Rollins at Peter Rollins as well. Put a link to that in the show notes. You can find him on YouTube as well. Amanda from Facebook has a question for us.
3: How do I adapt to a new version of myself that isn't so tied to what I do and instead embrace who I am?
1: Now, I'm reminded of a Schopenhauer quote. Let me see if I can find it here. But it, oh, here it is. We have already seen in general that what a man is contributes much more to his happiness than what he has or how he is regarded by others. Now, I read this to my daughter, who's nine. Like, why does he always say he? Why does she say she? (laughs) So I just rephrased the sentence to her and she totally understood at nine. She begins to understand who you
2: are is different from what you have.
1: Can you expand Mm. on
2: that, Peter? Oh, yeah, the big question of being and having. <laughs> um, oh, so what will I say? So the question is, is, how do I kind of like stop being concerned about what I have and more, was it be? Yeah, so how, I'm so I, tied
1: to what I do and that yeah. I don't even make room for who I am. And, and maybe if I were to give something pithy on this, mm-hmm. it's uh, human doing is a downgrade from a human being, which is sort of a reworking of, a, of a, an old apathom. But we are often, we think what we do mm. is who we are. In fact, it's the first question we ask someone, hey, what do you do? And yeah. what do we say? I, we give a job title. Yeah. I am a director of operations for XYZ Corporation. Or, oh, I'm just a mom, I'm just a server, I'm just a whatever. And it's like, well, no, you're so much more than what that job title encompasses.
2: Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's difficult because you could say behind everything, uh Hegel would say this, is that behind everything is a desire for recognition. So even if you want to be rich, you kind of, you're doing it for recognition in some way. If you buy something you want, even if you're buying something for your house, you're, you're presenting yourself in a certain way, hopefully to get recognition from another. And, and that's very important for us as, as human beings. We want, we're, we're all interconnected. One of the things I love about that notion of desire that Freud was talking about with that phrase, what does a woman want, which then Lacan expands out to in a sense what do we all want is that we're all intertwined mm. my desire is not private I don't have private desire whenever like I did this in Belfast where I was reading a book by this river and then I took a picture of it and I put it on Instagram I was going kind to, of like, why did I do that? Well, in one sense, the private enjoyment of reading the book was one thing, but I also wanted the enjoyment of sharing th- that I was having enjoyment, right? Now, there's good and bad dimensions of that, but it shows that all of us, private enjoyment is uh, is is impossible. Even if I'm playing a computer game privately, I am maybe thinking about the high score and how I would like to share it with someone else. Yeah. So we're, we're intertwined and interconnected, wanting recognition, wanting to be seen by the other and to see the other. And, can I pause you for oh, a yeah. second?
1: Because you have a great parable about this. Oh, yes. What is and it? Danny, <laughs> maybe he can say this parable in fewer than 60 seconds. But uh, you have a friend who got stuck on a deserted island. Oh, yes. Well,
2: which one? Oh, the one with the three buildings? Because no, I've got a few no, desert islands. Yeah. Oh, no, I <laughs> know I know the that, one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, my. oh, Seamus. Seamus, he, got, he was shipwrecked. That's right. And there was only one other survivor. And it was Penelope Cruz. Oh, yeah, this is a nightmare for him. So... Yeah, so my friend Seamus, he's, he's on a desert island. The only other survivor is Penelope Cruz. And he's like, you know, he's trying to use his best one-liners, try to win her over, right, try to seduce her. She's having none of it. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this crazy Irish guy. Uh, but eventually, after about six months... She realizes that he's the only guy around. And she's like, okay, like, I guess maybe, maybe we can have a nice little meal together. They have a meal together. And eventually they sleep together. And the next day, Seamus wakes up beaming, delighted, absolutely delighted. So that was wonderful. But he says, listen, just one thing. He says, would you put on my jacket? Okay, and would you draw a moustache on your face? And she's like, is this some weird sex thing? No, 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 just draw a moustache and a little beard on your face. And could you put my hat on and put these boots on? Brilliant. And then could you meet me down at the beach in 10 minutes? So Penelope Cruz goes, okay, I'll do it. So she goes down to the beach 10 minutes later with the jacket and the beard. And she sees Seamus. Seamus runs up to her, gives her a big hug, says, oh, says, I've been I've been so excited to see you. He said, gotta tell you, you'll never guess who I just slept with, right? In other words, (laughs) it's not enough to just sleep with Penelope Cruz. You have to tell someone, right? Um, And that's a joke I heard from Slavoj Shizek. He's very good at telling these very pithy stories, but it shows that, yeah, our enjoyment is never private. Our enjoyment is Mm. always public. By the way, it's called the incest taboo in anthropology. And the incest taboo is simply the idea that you can't just privately be at your mother's breast and just enjoy and then fall asleep. You have to separate from the mother other and find substitute enjoyment in community. And that's civilization. That's why civilization has always got discontent or misery uh, because there's some sort of feeling of a loss for civilization to happen. So yeah, that's 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 kind of what lies, lies behind it. But wouldn't Schopenhauer
1: mm. say that <laughs> in order to find true joy or whatever we're calling it eudaimonia that one must also be comfortable with themselves and with aloneness not loneliness yes but solitude
2: yeah so here's here's one of the solutions of schopenhauer and i you know i don't know if i would agree with him fully honest but i'll give it i I think it's a very interesting thing so so schopenhauer one Sometimes it's asceticism. So he wants us to renounce as much as possible to kind of to opt out of the frenetic pursuit of things. But that sounds very depressing. But he does have a more positive dimension as well because otherwise that's like renounce sex, renounce relationships, renounce products, like just renounce, renounce, renounce and become almost to the point where you're, you're almost dead until almost you could close your body down. The other element of Schopenhauer is he saw a real value in art, literature, music. And he said that when you contemplate a great piece of art or when you're in a great book or when you're listening to a great piece of music, the, the, you disappear. Briefly, mm. there's a moment where there's no painting and no you. There's a sense in which you just dissolve away. And that experience is a profoundly enjoyable one. And by the way, it reminded me of what Deborah was saying, because whenever we're ill, we might have to stay indoors. We might not be able to go out as much. We might start feeling that we're missing out. We might not be able to do all the things we want to do. But Schopenhauer would say, well, the problem is the more you kind of have basically what Freud called a narcissism, which is basically you want to go out, have a good time, and I I'm thinking about me, me, me. You actually, that's depression. The more you want. And the more you have a sense of self and the more you want to, mm. as a self, be liked by people, have a good time, have the right products, the more depressed you'll be. And Schopenhauer says, lose yourself in art, lose yourself in music, lose yourself in a book, and you will lose yourself. And in losing yourself, you will feel a contentment. That is, for Schopenhauer,
4: basically the best you can, the best you can get. <laughs> uh, yeah. And paradoxically, that actually increases your ability to be intimate with other people, to connect with other people. Because by sort of extricating yourself from this need to please other people, the need to impress them, you become more connected with yourself. And that's what people need. They need someone that's connected, not someone that's like dependent upon them for that experience of connection.
1: And generally people, when you go on a date with someone, they actually want you to be you. They don't want you to be what, that they want you to be, meaning yeah. like, yes, someone might have a list of like, here are what I'm looking, here's what I'm looking for in a partner. But I want you to be you, so I can see whether or not that even makes sense. Because if you contort yourself to fit my list of friendship, partnership, marriage, whatever it might be, if I'm forcing you to contort yourself, then I'm not loving you. I'm loving. It's this great John Mayer lyric. He said, uh, "Do you love me or the thought of me?" Mm. And quite often, it's we love the thought of someone else, the idealized version. Oh, if he just changes these 16 things about himself, then I will like him. Otherwise, well, we have some work to do, right? And it's like, well, that's not a relationship. Yeah. That's dragging someone, kicking and screaming toward your ideal version of them. And so generally, people do want you to show up as yourself because even if it you two don't match you, there's no fit there between the two of you, then that, then you don't have to continue down you know, the same path or you don't have to get dragged down the path. You don't have to drag them down the path either.
2: And the, yeah. the weird miracle of this from a psychoanalytic perspective, if, if you go with the idea, and so I'm going to simplify a lot for the sake of this, but if, if you go with the idea that uh, what you desire is the desire of the other, and then what they desire is the desire of the other. So I'm desiring your desire, you're desiring my desire. Um, A a weird thing has to happen, which is not that I'm coming into a relationship. If I go on a date and I sit down with someone, it's not that I have a list of my likes and dislikes and you have a list of your likes and dislikes and we see if they match. It's more that I sit down and I go, oh, weirdly, I kind of want to start liking what you like. And that person miraculously at the same time is going, i'd quite like to start liking what you like, and the two people begin to undergo a metamorphosis a transformation so it's a, and and that's why it's so difficult and that's why you know dating apps often don't work is you know you go with all of your likes and dislikes when really what you're looking for is you're not looking for someone to match all your likes and dislikes like in some respects you're looking for someone who will make you start liking other things <laughs> to, to right. like what they like, but that that kind of spark, and we can talk about what, what that is, but that spark in which I'm sitting down with you on a date, and I'm like, oh, there's something about you that I actually want. You're into French film? I've never watched a French film in my life before. I've never thought about it, but you're making me want to watch a French film.
4: You know, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're awakening something in me. Yes, And, and, and that's the problem with, Trying to contort yourself and bend over backwards to be who you think other people want you to be, because if you can't be you, then I can't discover anything new through you right and 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 if you're trying to be who I think you need to be, I'm already bored because I already know me. I already got me. I already leave with me, live with me. It's sort of like show me a world that I have not created. Show me something new to discover yes, yeah. I mean,
2: love can often be this incredible experience where a person opens up a world to you that you've never even considered. Like, Mm. So, you know, whether it's a sexual world or whether it's an emotional world, whether it's an intellectual world, it's like, I'll say, you know, French movies as an example, but it's like, oh, that's a whole world that I never even thought about. And and now this, this, and what happens with memetic desire is, I start to desire it, like the, like the example I used earlier, the very romantic example of somebody watching while you're having sex. <laughs> but, you know, you, you take that on as because there's desire infused, but then it becomes yours. Yeah. So I, I, maybe I could think of a more romantic version of that, but that's, that's kind of how desire works. So in love, someone you're sitting down with, as you said so beautifully, opens up a whole new universe.
4: Hey, I want to give my pipe D for this answer. Go for it. Sometimes the people who are close to you are closed to you. Mm. Um, and it's important to stay open by surrounding yourself with people that are open to you. There used to be this show on MTV. I don't remember the name of it. Uh, MTV is not a sponsor. They it, it was like a dating show where the parents who didn't like the person that was dating their son or daughter would get to pick someone else for their son or daughter to go, go out with. Oh, and, wow. and they would go out on a date and the parents would sit there with the, the the real boyfriend or girlfriend that they didn't like. And they'd watch the date together, right? And so the parents would be teasing the other kid if it's going well or so on. And so, so you'd have an example where, let's say, um, there are uh, parents of a son. They don't like the girl that their son is dating. And so they pick some other girl and the two of them are going out and they're sitting there with the son's girlfriend. And the new girl is like, hey, you want to go golfing? And the girlfriend laughs to herself and is like, oh my gosh, she's never going to do that. He doesn't like golfing. And he goes, sure, that sounds cool. And then he goes golfing and she's confused. Like, how is this happening? And he looks like he's having a good time. And he's open to all these things that he never did with me. And you, and it, and it wasn't based on gender. You saw this with every type yeah. people doing this. And one of the things that's interesting that this show illustrates is that we become open to new possibilities within ourselves when we are around people who aren't enclosed to those possibilities. Mm. Sometimes when people think they know you, you can internalize that familiarity and experience it as a limitation that you place on yourself. So I've got friends who, if you say, hey, TK, let's go play golf. Those friends would laugh and be like, TK, (laughs) you're asking a wrong dude. And everybody would get it. And I would get it too because those are my friends and those are my circles. And it's easier for me to kind of just lock into that identity. But if I'm around somebody who invites me to play a game of golf and they're completely undramatic about it, they're not even thinking about it like, I know this is a big deal for you, TK. They're just sort of casual like, hey, TK, let's go play a game of golf. It's easier for me to buy into that casually like, oh, yeah, let's just go do it. There's nothing dramatic about it. Keep people in your life that you don't already know and who don't think they already know you. Because those are the people who are going to become the permission slip that allows you to explore new possibilities. Yeah,
2: I mean, absolutely. You'll notice. I actually was talking to someone who she's in a relationship for seven years, and she was talking to her partner, and she was talking about some new interest, and like she just had no thought that the that her partner would be at all interested in that. And but that set off a light within him, and what they discovered is, you know, this new interest arose. But it, it's basically because, you know, we think we know the other person because we're sharing each other's desires. We know, it. but as soon as you introduce a new desire, it opens up a new possibility, a new world. That's why often in couples, if 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 one of them meets somebody else and they're into some other kind of stuff, whatever it is, you know, hobbies or sexual life, they can often go, "Oh my goodness, I feel like you've opened up a part of me that 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 I haven't opened before." It's not quite true. This is the argument I would make is um, I I don't, I, I would argue against the idea that there's a central substantial me that has a box that you open up and you've discovered a new dimension of me. It's more like your desire is opening up new forms of desire within me. Because one of the problems we do have, and Schopenhauer would reject this as well, is we often are trying to get to the true self. Who is the true me? And we always feel we're getting there. If you ever talk to someone who's into this idea of who the true me is, it almost feels, it always feels like they've got there and they haven't got there a year before, but a year later they'll be, <laughs> you know, because, but what they're feeling is they're trying to get to the true substantial self. But I think what they're feeling to realize and what psychoanalysis teaches us is you're never going to get to that secret box of your true substantive desire Every person you meet is going to, if you let them, if you're open to spontaneity and novelty to the apocalyptic event of the other person, they are going to open up a new vista, a new avenue, a new river within you. Yeah, forever. But,
4: That's so good.
2: For <laughs> listeners
3: that are curious, the TV show TK mentioned is called Parental Controls. Shout out to Jessica in the live chat for naming that one.
1: Nice. Oh, nice, yeah. Thanks, nice, Jessica. Yeah, I'm Thanks. so glad that my mom didn't put me on that show because she would have spent <laughs> she would have spent ten years just trying to get, she or she spent most of her life trying to get me to date Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I had to explain to her that I was not attracted to Ryan, but she was just secretly hoping that someday Ryan and I would get married. <laughs> To, I've
2: got a very close friend, Jay Baker, one of my best friends, and best friend. And uh, people are always saying, you know, you and him would make a great couple. I'm going, yeah, just missing that one thing. <laughs> Actually, it's way worse than that for me. Like,
1: if Ryan was, like, I was really attracted. If I was attracted to him physically, we still would be a terrible couple together.
2: Yeah, in terms of, like living together, you know and it would be great for the minimalists You put some cameras in that house. Oh my you, god, you would make millions. <laughs> Shout out to our patrons.
1: <laughs> we were talking about how to grow. The the patreon yeah. uh, there's there's one there idea is. that's the idea all right let's uh, let's move on to a question from twitter amaya has a question for us
3: what are your thoughts on this twitter thread about the danger of minimalist design and the death of detail
1: okay so i had malabama print this out for me so i can just pass these on the first thing i'm looking at here this is a whole twitter thread we'll put a link to this in the show notes by the way And really what they're illustrating here is when you take simplicity or simplifying, not simplicity, you take simplifying too far. When you see something that is ornate and maybe too ornate. And then the pendulum swings the other way. We see this all the time where someone goes from being a hoarder to a Spartanist over the course of a year, and then they can't hold on to anything. It's like being stuck and frozen onto the monkey bars, but then someone put butter all of your hands and now you can't hold on to anything at all. So to me, this is when minimalism design goes bad in some respects. However, I'll say but some of these just look much better to me. I mean, they look more aesthetically pleasing. The question is, do you lose function because you've made form a god of sorts? So here's the first one. It's just like a little parking cone or parking pole that prevents people from running up on a curb. And to me, that just looks appreciably better. We'll put these up on the screen as well. Jordan, if you want to put them right here above my hand somewhere, we'll put these on the screen so you can see them if you are watching the video version of the podcast. The next one here is some railing for a fence. And what I'll say is, again, this to me looks appreciably better even though it has a lack of detail, as pointed out in the tweet. Although, I would say if it makes it less safe, that would be a problem. Although... Are you saying you like the minimalist one more? Certainly. Absolutely. And you do not. Yeah, you're mad. (laughs) <laughs> and so here's what I'll say. And we, we did this recently. We did, Ryan and I did a minimalist architecture private podcast. It was a long mm-hmm. podcast where we reviewed a bunch of minimalist architecture. And what I said in that episode was this. I'm a fan of brutalism. So am I, actually. I'm a fan of brutalism. But if we were to prescribe that on to everyone, everyone now must live under brutalism. (laughs) You talk about the Soviet Union. Yeah. You're, You're talking about forcing that on to people. And so what I'll say to Amaya is minimalism is a tool. It's not a prescription. And so these things, they actually look better to me. If the minimalist guardrail was less safe than the really ornate slightly uglier guardrail, then I would say, oh, you don't want form to trump function. However, here's the weird thing about guardrails. There's data around this. If you go to uh, the Grand Canyon, the places where people die most frequently are the places with guardrails because we overstep our bounds when these artificial boundaries are set up. And so we try to climb on top of them or stand on top of the guardrails. And so people die most frequently at the guardrails. If there isn't a guardrail there, they stand a few feet back and then they don't stand in danger. So maybe here, the most minimalist design would be
2: to remove the guardrail altogether. I'm just imagining if you were President, it would be reading Schopenhauer and Brutalist architecture. That's terrifying, <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. I would be, I'd be happy, but I don't know if many other people would. <laughs> I think I would amplify it, but I would not prescribe ah, it. Yes, yeah. And I think that, well, that maybe the power would get
1: to your head. Uh, you yes, know, so. <laughs> yes, and I, I will become the tyrant. Mm-hmm. And here's the one we might disagree with the most. Mm-hmm. Here, so we'll put this on the screen. It'll be in color on the screen, but I'm handing over black and white. This is a old British red phone booth versus like an American minimalist phone booth and well I can appreciate the old British charm of the red phone booth let's face it we don't even have phone booths at all anymore so all of this has been rendered irrelevant anyway what are your thoughts on this
2: this is where the minimalists get controversial this is where you're gonna get cancelled for not liking the red phone booth this is (laughs) (laughs) That's a design classic. That red phone, but but you are right that they're kind of like uh, redundant now. Um, yeah,
1: and so I think quite often over time, the things that were beautiful, they still become, they're still beautiful, but they become useless sometimes, right? And it's not that art needs to be useful. In fact, most great art has no utilitarian use whatsoever. That's not why we enjoy art. I, I've never been to like the Lackama. walked in and said, oh, it's a beautiful painting, but what, we're, what are we going
4: to use it for? Yeah. it's It transcends that in a way. It's interesting because it's the thread is titled The Danger of Minimalist design and the, and, the, and the death of detail. So I'm, I'm not sure if the phone booth you know falls in that category. I don't see anything dangerous about this, but whatever. Maybe it should be titled The Danger of Dangerous Design or The Danger of Things I Don't Like. Who knows? Here's something that's interesting to me. There's a line here where he says, it is a troubling phenomenon because of what minimalism represents. Da, 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 da. What does minimalism represent? Apparently, I was wrong on what I thought it was because it represents a lack of detail. Mm. And that's an interesting that's an interesting claim. I don't know any minimalists who actually say that minimalism represents a lack of detail. It represents a lack of excess. Yes, and there's a huge difference, right? Because it's sort of like writing, Say everything that you need to say for the story that you're telling and not a word more. Now, if the story that I'm telling isn't designed to entertain, but it's merely designed to convey directions about how to get to the grocery store, then I'm going to have only a certain amount of detail. If the purpose of the story is to make you laugh or to entertain, I might need 20 words just to describe a blade of grass. There's no objective amount of detail that's too much. It's based on what's the story you're trying to sell, what's the purpose you're trying to achieve, and to go beyond that is excess. How do you know you have excess? Excess. When what you have is making you feel overwhelmed, making you feel stressed out, making you feel in over your head, you can discern by your own internal compass whether your relationship with something constitutes excess or not. It's not about how big or small something is. Professor Sean, you had a note that you wanted to add.
1: Yeah, um, talking
2: about danger here. uh, One of the examples was the parking bollard. I had a friend who tore his scrotum jumping over an overly designed parking bollard and that would not have happened with the minimalist one (laughs) so it would not have happened if your friend wasn't an idiot yes (laughs) this is true I think it was a parkour accident you can't blame Uh, the pole on that one (laughs) well I will say this
1: if you embrace minimalism you're protecting your balls yes (laughs) Malabama we got so much more to talk about today but what do you got for us first
3: here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners
5: Hello, my name is Amberly. I'm from Louisiana, and I wanted to tell y'all about um, a company that I find a lot of value in. Um, it's called United by Blue, and they, um, I'm not getting anything from them for saying this. I just really enjoyed the company. I bought a backpack from them a couple years ago, and I'm, I love it. It's really great, and I'm finding a lot of value in it. Uh, they have quality products. They're very environmentally friendly, and they take a pound of trash out of the ocean for every project that you buy. Thank you. And thanks for everything y'all do. Y'all are great. Hi, guys. Um, This is Trish from uh, Grover, North Carolina. And I'm a landscaper.
0: And I just wanted to say for you and also the rest of the listeners on your podcast, um, everybody likes to use uh, tires. It's it's shredded up tires. It's a one-time mulch, they call it. And
5: it... They advertise it sometimes
0: as a better alternative, but it is horrible for the environment. It will pollute it, um, and over time, the mulch will break down, and it will literally be pieces of metal tire in your garden or your bushes or whatever. So I would just
5: like to discourage anybody from uh, thinking this is a better alternative than mulch. It is very bad for the environment, and it is not meaningful at all.
1: Welcome back to The Minimalist. Before we get into our simple living segments, let's read some more about less. Peter, we've been talking about Schopenhauer quite a bit today, and so I wanted to expand on that, and maybe you can point us in the right direction here. This is this college student. Her name is Allison Parker. She is a BA in philosophy and English at Austin P State University and is pursuing an MFA of creative fiction writing at the University of Memphis. And she wrote this paper called A Pragmatic Look at Schopenhauer's Pessimism. And this is just an excerpt from the introduction. We'll put a link to the whole paper in the show notes. And I want to use this as a jump-off point mm. for discussion here. So here's what she says. Schopenhauer introduces his pessimistic philosophy in the article on, suffering, on the sufferings of the world by pointing out to the reader, that our lives are full of suffering. He writes that misfortune in general is the rule by which we live our lives. He defines suffering as the positive force instead of the negative. Suffering, or evil, is not the absence of good, but a positive force in its own right. Schopenhauer states that human pain and suffering outweighs pleasure and joy. So, you touched on that a little bit earlier. I want to dwell on this line in particular because I think people will misunderstand what he means by suffering is positive, not negative. Not positive in the sense of positive thinking, yep. but that it
2: exists. How deep into philosophy do we want to go here? I mean, the big thing for Schopenhauer is it's not just, as people know, he's not like he's just a depressed guy, goes, looks around and says, oh, you know, everyone's suffering and life is evil, life is difficult. It's that he perceives within everything this insatiable drive. And so if this is an insatiable drive, he very beautifully uh, articulates this in the world as will and representation. He says, basically, we we are uh, in a pendulum swing between boredom and pain. In this insatiable drive, we either don't get what we want and we're in suffering and we're in pain, or we get what we want and we're bored. Uh, so it's kind of like this impossible, impossible bind. And so suffering becomes the kind of like the universal dimension of reality Simply because we are all destabilized by this insatiable drive that can never be satisfied, and when the moments that it is satisfied, the moments when we can, when we feel we got something we wanted, uh rarely worth the effort and passes so quickly, and we want to desire something else. So that's that's the Schopenhauerian kind of worldview. That's what he. That's what he means by will, and will is an. Everything, it's in the, very and this is before, as I mentioned, even before Darwin, uh, Schopenhauer's philosophy is one of the few philosophies where Darwinism uh, and evolutionary theory actually strengthened the position. Um, Darwin's book came out just, I think, a year before he died. And so a lot of Schopenhauerians kind of said, well, here's here's Schopenhauer's view of reality in the biological world that we have oil and we have coal because l- life is so many deaths, so much destruction, so much f- uh, suffering um, in the physical world that creates complexity. Let's
1: talk a bit more about, we, we hear the word pessimism and we think mm. bad. Pessimism, bad. Optimism, good. <clears throat> right? Yeah. Where. It wasn't that. It seems to
2: me that he was, as the article pointed out, uh, a bit of a pragmatist in a way. He was. But one of the differences between him and Nietzsche is Nietzsche did feel, and Nietzsche was very influenced by Schopenhauer, said Schopenhauer was the kind of one philosopher he respected, uh, <laughs> but uh, which, you know, Nietzsche never liked anybody. He he was an equal opportunities hater. He hated everybody, but he liked Schopenhauer, uh, But one of the things he thought about Schopenhauer is he didn't feel that he overcame pessimism. Like Nietzsche wanted to overcome nihilism and pessimism. And so the difference between Nietzsche and Schopenhauer perhaps is Nietzsche has this beautiful myth of eternal return, where he says, imagine a demon appears to you one day and says that you will have to repeat your life in every detail again and again and again for all eternity. And then he asked the reader, what would you say? And he says, like, if you would despair and scream in agony, then you have not overcome life. You have not affirmed life. But if you would be able to look that demon in the eye and you would be able to say yes and amen, then Nietzsche says, basically, you're kind of like an Ubermensch. You're you're able to affirm life in all of its difficulty and all of its sufferings and all of its joys. So whereas Schopenhauer's cure was a little bit more aesthetic and a little bit more kind of like trying to uh, minimize your desire and lose your sense of self. Nietzsche's was a little bit more embrace the desire, uh, embrace all of the complexity um, uh, and say yes and amen to it. So those are the two slight differences. Um, they also have a slight, slightly different way of thinking about what will is. Schopenhauer thought it was a will to life. Uh, But Nietzsche, and this is why Nietzsche is so important to Freud as well, is Nietzsche said, well, there's something even more than the will to life, and it's the will to power, because someone will actually kill themselves for something. Sometimes there's something even more basic than the will to life. And uh, so Nietzsche was saying, uh, you know, he kind of like played with Schopenhauer on that as well.
4: Nietzsche had this sort of teleological dimension to his thinking where it's kind of, Driving towards something like there, like there's a kind of flirtation with transcendence going on that you that you don't see as much in the contrast. Yeah, that's a good point. I
2: mean, that's very much in Hegel, especially that there's mm-hmm. a there's a, a a teleological dimension to this. Um, but that's interesting about Nietzsche as well, because in some respects Nietzsche wants to avoid any explicit teleology. But I can kind of see he has this idea of the Übermensch. So I guess that is a kind of.
4: Yeah. Um, I, I think it's important too to cl- kind of <laughs> clarify the concept of misery, because misery is one of those words like stress, where once upon a time when people use the word stress, they were referring to things like discomfort, exertion, something that could be good, could be bad, could be healthy or unhealthy. Whereas now when we use the word stress in contemporary culture, it almost always means something that shouldn't be in your life. And I think when Schopenhauer talks about misery here, he's talking about a word that we would understand today as tension, tension not necessarily physical pain not necessarily family tragedy because when we hear the word misery we all have our own images that are invoked but misery here is tension discomfort the things that we're inclined to feel or observe and say i don't like that the experience of contrast if you will
2: yeah that's very good and 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 for schopenhauer it's almost like there's a there's a type of misery for a rock or a rock undergoes destruction But then an animal undergoes not just physical destruction, but also its life dies. And then human beings, we're objects like the rock. So our bodies die. We're life just like a dog. And so Mm. we undergo dissolution there. And also we're subjects. And misery is at the subjective level, this tension. Um, So we kind of get it on all three levels. A rock doesn't feel the misery uh, in the same way as we do and a dog doesn't in the same way as we do. We're (laughs) kind of like experiencing this, this will to life in all three dimensions. The the reason why Schopenhauer is so important is a beginning of a type of line of thought that you can see then through Nietzsche, Freud, Lacan, others. And maybe this fits with the definition of minimalism. So I'll, I'll look to you as the experts on minimalism, but Schopenhauer is the first like systematic philosopher of this kind of modern tradition to kind of say that we need to shift our focus away from what will fulfill lack to the lack itself. That there's this little movement where you go... You know, we're always looking for the thing that will fulfill desire, fulfill lack, fulfill this gap, this this sense of a a, a gap in our being. We're always looking to fill that. And Schopenhauer is really his in the world as will and representation. That book has a very persuasive argument to say that uh, if you're able to realize that that actually you have to tarry with that lack, you have to somehow. Uh, experience that you can't ever get rid of it and there's something about just changing your focus to this this lack within reality that is um, a way to overcome the anxiety and the, the suffering that comes from this frenetic pursuit of happiness, the frenetic pursuit of satisfaction, the frenetic pursuit of certainty. Now, Schopenhauer is the first to kind of do it. So I, I don't think his solution to that problem is as, is as good as Nietzsche's or Freud's. But, but you know, he, um, he helps us understand that, that minimalism is perhaps going, we have to somehow make peace with a dimension of lack uh, and not always try to fulfill it.
1: Colloquially, we refer to this now as the void, right? Yeah. And no matter what you call it, the lack, the void, the God-shaped hole, whatever it is, we try to fill it. We're completionists in Mm -hmm. many respects because we think as soon as we complete ourselves, we complete our homes, we complete our lives, then we will therefore be complete individuals. And that finally is the end point of happiness and contentment and perpetual bliss. And then we get there and of course... It doesn't work, so we just try to fill it with more things. It's the reason the average American household has 300,000 items, because we saw our house as the void. We see our lives as the void. We see our struggles as the void. I have that lack. I must fix it. I must remove it. I must repair it. I must replace it. And it never works, as opposed to Walking in a museum and saying, look at this beautiful, empty space. It's not a
2: void. It's openness. It's freedom. Yes. How can you enjoy it? Instead of, I love that. I like Instead of, how do I overcome it? How do I get rid of it? How do I fulfill it? How do I enjoy it? Um, that's, yes. Yeah.
4: It's yeah. key. I, I often um, refer to James P. Carse's work, Finite and Infinite Games. And in that book, one of the things he talks about is how a finite game is characterized by winning and losing. An infinite game is characterized by play and possibility. The purpose of a finite game is the defeating of your opponent. The purpose of an infinite game is the continuation of play. And one of the things we talk about a lot in that contrast between consumption and creativity is that creativity is an infinite game where the purpose is the expiration of play and possibility. It's not about getting there and then being done. And when you observe children playing, one of the things you see is that the completion of the game is the thing they try very hard to avoid. Children don't stop playing because the game is done. They stop playing because their body says, "All right, we got to do this tomorrow because we're done, we're out of energy," right? Yes. You have to stop them from playing, and that's how life I don't want to say should feel, but that's how life feels when you are playing the infinite game. The you know, the 24-hour cycle passes, you fall asleep because you run out of energy. But you never have a sense of being done and you actually enjoy that because the goal isn't to be done. It's to have fun.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm reminded
4: of, we were just in the hall talking, Danny and I were talking,
1: and the burden of ownership of a thing, right? He was talking about when he was young, he was trying, he's still really young, but when he was younger, he was saving up to buy one of these jet skis, right? Because they live near a lake and he wanted to buy a jet ski and he and his friend bought one together. And then, all of a sudden it had all these problems and they had to repair it every week and it was essentially useless half the time, right? But as a kid, you have access to everything, ownership over nothing. And as a result, you're not burdened by all of the ownership. And so uh, quite often, I know, Pete, you you took a car service over here. You didn't have to own the car in order to, to get here. Hmm. And I think quite often when we have access to these things, not needing to complete ourselves by having full power and dominion over it, but having the ability to access it when I need it, all of a sudden, the possibility is there, but the burden of maintenance is not there.
4: Yes. And, and we, we think we need all those things because it's kind of like the sense of play is schooled out of us. I mean, e- even think about it with little things. When, when you're a child, all of your books have pictures. And you're never taught anything that doesn't involve like a song or dance. You know, like I learned how to do the alphabet by A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I still say the song, right? Or I learned how to count by using my fingers or using apples. And by the time you get a little bit older, you're given this message that the definition of maturity is to not need those things, you're smarter if you can count without the use of your fingers. You're smarter if you can read the books that don't have pictures in them. And so we began to associate intelligence. We, we began to associate adulthood with reading books that don't have images and not needing those images. Being able to memorize something without a song and without needing to sing. Being able to convey a message without dancing or needing to dance. Being prim and proper and mature. And that paves the way for this mindset of looking at the world in this purely pragmatic sense, and we wonder why we lose that sense of play and possibility, it's schooled right out of us.
1: Pete, I'm hoping you can comment on this. I think, to bounce off what TK said, we are living in the most immature time in all of human history. Mm. And here's what I mean by that. A sign of maturity is a willingness not to blame others for our own misery, our own suffering, our own problems, etc., etc. Because you can't make me upset. Only I can make me upset. And yet if I blame you, it's a sign that I'm behaving immaturely. Well, what do we see now? The amplification of blame through social media and the internet where we're all pointing fingers. It's become that Spider-Man meme on steroids where we're all at fault and yet we're all blaming everyone else. And that seems to me to be a sign of absolute immaturity.
2: Yeah. Um, so can I mention, mention two types of God very quickly to kind of touch on this is, um, we can talk about, uh, the God of prohibition and the God of the demand to enjoy. So very briefly, the God of prohibition means the idea that, and this is a, this is an old idea. Uh, Freud talks about it, but that when you're born into the world, you feel you've lost something. Uh, there is life after death and we are the evidence of it. That in a sense, mm. there's something that has died, something we had to give up in order to become a subject. And this, this is what I mentioned earlier, the incest taboo. The incest taboo, is, in a sense, we have to kind of like break it out into symbolic enjoyment and into the world. You feel you've lost oceanic oneness. You're marked with this loss. Now, the God of the prohibition is the idea that We're all, in the psychoanalytic terms, we're all castrated, which means all of us have had to give up something to be subjects, to be human. We're all, we're unified, not in what we share, but we're unified that we're all outsiders. We're unified that we all had to give a pound of flesh, but there's one exception. There's a fantasy of one exception and often that's God, right? God is the one who lacks the lack. But it might also be a figure, like a a powerful king or queen. They have everything, but all of us lack. But in the contemporary world, and we can chart why it happened, but we're in a situation of what's called the God of the demand to enjoy. And this is a different type of God. This is the God that says, you don't have to be castrated. You're not castrated. You can have everything you want. You should have everything you want. So if you look at social media, you're always being bombarded by images of people who are ungustrated, who have the thing and the demand to enjoy. And one of the problems with the the God of the demand to enjoy is that you, whenever you can't enjoy, the anxiety it produces, you start to have to blame somebody. You also start to resent people. You start to have mm-hmm. jealousy and envy for the people you imagine have the enjoyment that you don't have. And it creates uh, fragmentation within society. So you have social fragmentation, fraying of social bonds. This God, And we, we live today in the God of the demand to enjoy. And one of the results I think you're touching on is the uh, social fragmentation. We have envy. We have je- So jealousy is when I want what you have and envy is when I want the relationship you have with what you have. So I might be jealous because I want your partner or I might be envious because I want the type of relationship you have with your partner, but I have to find someone to blame in this God of the demand to enjoy.
4: Okay. So one, one, one thing I, I, I want to build on that with is, is this distinction between uh, blame and and the attribution of causation, right? So, so, the attribution of causation is the effort to make sense out of why something happened, right? By recounting the events that preceded it. Josh, if you um, if you lean against the, the table too strongly and the coffee cup spills over and there's coffee on the table, it would be accurate for me to say, there's coffee on the table because Josh knocked over his cup. I'm attributing causation to your behavior. But that's different from me being unhappy about it and saying, I'm unhappy because Josh spilled the coffee, right? That's blame. And the reason I'm unhappy about it isn't because you spilled the coffee, it's because, well, when I grew up, someone taught me to get really angry when things were spilled. And so now I'm carrying that into the present and projecting that up on you. Or maybe I have a moral belief that says, it's a bad thing for things to be spilled, right? Or it's a sign that you don't respect me for spilling my cup or something along those lines. And so those are two very different things. And the reason that blame is a sign of immaturity isn't because, hey, it's wrong to blame people and you're being bad. Blame is a sign of immaturity because it's an expression of the fact that I'm not really aware of why I am attributing causation to you for something that I feel rather than just the physical event itself. Causation belongs to events, right? not to what I'm experiencing. And so when we say it's a sign that you're immature, some people may hear that as like, oh, okay, you guys think you are the enlightened ones telling me that I'm immature. Well, I know that someone did something to me that I don't like and I'm sticking with that. It's like, well, no, like there are things that happen in your life that aren't in your fault. We all experience pain. That is the direct result of what someone else did to us. But there's a difference between that and me saying, I am now going to say this person is responsible for the way I orient myself towards the world. Gentlemen, we need to talk about religion.
2: Ah, okay, let's
1: do it. So TK recently converted to Catholicism. So I don't know if I need to build a, a peace wall between the two of you. <laughs> that's right, I need, I need the to six get foot ready. under
2: peace wall. There's a, <laughs> did I tell you about that? There's a peace wall that's in a, in a cemetery that goes six foot under to keep the Protestants from the Catholics in Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> the only time I've ever been to to Belfast, it, I was so fascinated by these so-called peace <clears throat> walls because they are a a a peace wall is quite the euphemism. Mm. I mean it's the exact opposite of what it is. It's a a wartime wall. Mm. If one has peace, then one does not need the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, I wanted to talk a bit about religion because on this podcast, and we'll save this for the just the private podcast obviously, but um me and Ryan and TK all have different religious and spiritual beliefs, and there are people in this room as well who have different religious and spiritual beliefs. Where we get caught up is we tether those beliefs to a dogma that moralizes everything uh, that the other person does, and, and the blame is part of that as well. And so I wanted to talk because, Pete, you are a theologian, a philosopher, you have a great podcasts, fundamentalists, and you talk about these things, but I now that we have TK here, I'm really interested to hear, TK, you and I have had a private conversation about this. I'd love to hear what you'd be willing to talk about on the air about that conversion. What interested you And in, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to go that route. Hmm. What did you appreciate
4: about it? Why did you feel compelled to move in that direction? it's a long process. I don't want to put it on, you know, like, hey, I read this book and that was it. I watched this YouTube video and that was it. I had this single mystical experience and that was it. I mean, really, it was the, it was the culmination of a process that involved part mystical experience, part research, part conversation with people, part exploring over many years. And I, I guess I would say that the short answer for why I converted to Catholicism is that um, I, I, I would give two two short answers, which is Number one, I, I became convinced that this is the historical expression of the fullness that is Christianity, that, that this is Christianity as it was understood by its practitioners in the first, second, third century, and so on. And, and the other would be that, to quote Marcus Borg, to say that I am a Christian means that it is within the context of Christian sacraments, Christian liturgy, Christian Christian devotion that the reality of the sacred is most effectively mediated to me. So this is this is why I call the Catholic Church home. It seems Short to me. Answer.
1: It seems to me that you find value in the liturgical nature of the Mass and of the rituals, et cetera. Now, Pete, you call yourself a Christian. Mm-hmm. You say you, you're a Christian. What does that mean when when someone says they're a Christian?
2: Yeah. Oh. Ah. Those are two different ones. <laughs> yes. Well, what? Because what I mean by it is different, obviously, from probably what most people do. I don't go to church. I'm not a confessional Christian. It's not a theistic thing or anything like that. So I'm in what's called radical theology, and it, I'll maybe say it like this because I mentioned the the God of the prohibition, which is we're all castrated, we're all divided except for one. We fantasize one non-divided other, and then there's the God of enjoyment which is that we can all be undivided, that we can all enjoy. Um, uh, it's kind of the anal father, the father who you know, gives, we can all have enjoyment. Um, my interest in theology and Christianity in particular is, it for me, its most radical moment is that it has the notion of a castrated God, uh, an absolute mm. that is itself divided. Um, so what I would argue is that uh, reality is in conflict with itself, is in contradiction with itself. And we, we call it different things in different uh, areas. So in biology, we call it evolution. In mathematics, uh, incompleteness. In physics, indeterminacy. Uh, in psychoanalysis, the unconscious. Uh, in, in theological terms, crucified Christ, which is a God who dies. The kind of a self-divided God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But for me... That is not about belief in anything or non-belief. You can have that. That's, you know, whatever. That's cultural and whatever. But the idea that that reality itself is divided by participating in that dividedness, I find salvation is is what I def- how I define Christianity. It's a mode of identifying directly with the self-division of reality itself. So the difference is... If, if I say, you know, there is one undivided other, that's God or it's, it's the king or it's uh, Will Smith or whatever, I can feel very, very jealous. And I, one day I'll get there. One day I'll go to heaven and everything will be complete. Or one day I could make enough money and I would be like Will Smith, right? So I'm a bit depressed because I don't have it. In the world of the demand to enjoy, it's even worse because uh, I'm constantly being told... I have to enjoy, be complete, be whole. It creates anxiety and jealousies and envies. But in this notion of the God, the castrated God, uh, which is basically where symbolically I enter into the idea that everything is divided, including reality itself. And this is very Schopenhauerian. Then I am freed from this fantasy that somehow everything could be better. And I'm able to be freed from the frenetic pursuit of objects that will satisfy. And that's what I mean by being a Christian.
4: I want to offer some commentary on his oh, yeah. on, on the way he described belief. There's something beautiful about the way he described belief as something that transcends the mere intellectual parameters. All too often, when we use the word belief as it applies to religion, we mean meeting the belief requirement, meeting the requirement to offer intellectual assent To a set of propositions. And certainly belief includes that, but the early Christians saw belief as participatory, right? So when St. Augustine says, it is not that I understand that I might believe, but I believe that I might understand. It's like, okay, well, what the heck does that mean? How can you do that? His concept of belief was a participatory concept, right? It's Every action that I take, every ritual that I participate in, every act of prayer or meditation or walking down the street, the way I treat my neighbor, these are all investments that we make in our spirituality. They either wake us up or they reinforce the sense of being asleep, the sense of being on autopilot. And so I think one of the problems with overly intellectualizing belief, and you've done a lot of work against this, is that there are people who genuinely desire to engage in spiritual practice. They genuinely enjoy being part of religious communities, but they have these intellectual doubts, these sincere uncertainties about the truth of certain propositions. Hmm, do I, I honestly don't know if the Bible was inspired by God. I honestly don't know if there were really 5,233 people living in Israel according to this census or this chapter and verse, and they feel like they have to run away or they feel guilty about that. And that notion of belief works against an environment where people can come forward and experience true religion, which is that which is not afraid of our questions, of our uncertainties. Because what kind of God is the sort of God who says, oh, we have nothing to do here because you have uncertainty. I need absolute certainty. I need you to know everything. Everything becomes more exciting when we can bring our uncertainties to the table and say, you know what, I I don't know if that's true, but I, but I'm open to possibility here. Right.
2: So if I was a confessional Christian, I'd be that. That's a bit. That's I like that a lot. Um, I like that a lot. That's. But what and what I want and this is we should have lots more conversations. Yeah. So we'll go for a drink after this. <laughs> uh, is um, is that so? I like this idea of doubt, ambiguity, and complexity built into confessional Christian. And when I talk about confessional Christianity, I'm talking about the confessional church, the the body of beliefs and. Um, uh, my primary degree is scholastic philosophy, actually, yeah. so I was yeah. very, got a lot of that Catholic stuff in me. Um, <laughs> within mysticism, there's always been this idea that the religious experience is a type of overwhelming of the intellect. So, mm-hmm. and and you, it's almost, you cannot conceptualize it because it kind of saturates you, it it blinds you by its light, by its excess. And I'm very, I like that, but I, I want to argue for a uh, very, a notion of, christianity as the lack not the excess so i think this would be oh sorry what do you mean by that so for me right for me to be human is to orient yourself to what you cannot speak or say even sciences because scientists obviously orient themselves to what they don't know um and then when you get into more interesting physics you're orienting yourself to probabilities etc etc so to be human I would argue, and even within capitalism, we orient ourselves to what we do not have, right? So there's always transcendence built into everything. It's everywhere. Um, The ultimate transcendence is death, right? This, This lack, the ultimate lack that we're moving towards. So for me, religion is a way, or various ways to try to orient ourselves to this unspeakable dimension of reality. But there are a number of ways that you can conceptualize that which cannot be conceptualized, and the way of confessional Christianity, I am I am more critical of. I can give you an example of what I mean if we're up for it. We've yeah. got plenty of time. I love this long form thing. You know, we can just chat away. So stop me if I get boring. Um, so using Freud, for example, he talked about this dimension of reality called Dasting, and Dasting is the unknown dimension of the other, particularly the mother. Right. So the infant, whenever they're at the mother's breast. Eventually, they start realizing that the mother has desires, other desires than the child, right? And the mother has this enigmatic desire, and that's called dasting. And the child tries to fit themselves into that enigmatic desire, and they start to fantasize how they can kind of, you know, be appealing to the desire of the other. That desire is a type of lack, because at the end of the day, the mother's desire is itself connected to the desire of her parents and so there's this kind of like not excess but there's a lack that generates a child's desire so i'll give you one example this is from a book by richard boothby called sex on the couch really good book uh richard boothby is a brilliant theorist
4: already Um, off to a great start with the title oh oh yeah no it's a
2: great (laughs) title yeah Uh, and he's coming out with a book on religion called embracing the void in a few months and it's an incredible book um he, uh, Freud noticed there was a girl went into this shop and uh, she suddenly got really embarrassed because she thought the shopkeepers were laughing at her. And she came out of the shop, ran away, and she had a phobia of going into shops. But she was kind of very drawn to shops and also very phobic against them. And Freud, kind of as he was analyzing her, uh, what he found out was that she had, there was some sexual abuse when she was young. I, I, she was grouped by a shopkeeper when she was like six years old. And this happened when she was maybe 12. And so when she was six years old, this this shopkeeper touched her inappropriately and had a grin on his face and had this kind of smile on his face. But only years later, when she went into the shop and she saw these shopkeepers and thought they were laughing at her, she felt this repulsion. And also this weird attraction and then the phobia started, right? So what you do is you go back and you go like, oh, she experienced the enigmatic, terrifying desire of the other in the shopkeeper. There was something about this desire. She couldn't understand it as a kid, but she knew that he was getting some desire from her, but didn't know what it was. There was a dasting dimension. And then when she was older, uh, she had a concrete experience that brought back her encounter with that with that desire. And that desire was both attractive and also repulsive. So all of this to say that I kind of I would want to argue that at our core, we are driven by this sense that there is an impenetrable desire, an impenetrable dimension of reality and the other that we cannot ever fully grasp. And the command to love your enemy and to love your neighbor is the demand to tarry with that impenetrable dimension of the other's desire to be able to face it. So the interesting thing for me about Christianity is it's not about... You'll notice at one stage it says, love God. And then there's later on in the New Testament says, love God and love your neighbor. And then even later on it says, love your neighbor. That's what loving God is, right? So it moves from loving God to love God and your neighbor to love your neighbor. The radical message potentially is that we as human beings need to be able to tarry with the toxicity of the other's desire to face it. And in facing it and in being open to it and in engaging with it, that is is the highest call.
4: You make me think of two passages or moments in scripture. One is where Joseph, the young dreamer, after having been betrayed by his brothers, literally sold into slavery, completely backstabbed, thrown into prison and goes through just a horrific life, is reunited with them at the end. And they say to him, forgive us for what we have done to you. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He had a concept of reality, if you will, or a way of engaging reality, if you will, that allowed him to interpret the behavior of those who fit the definition of enemy so well Mm. in a way that made it possible to love them. Where Jesus on the cross, against his very murderers, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is arguably the most difficult task. It's the aim of true religion. And it's the most difficult thing to do. I would argue that it's impossible apart from grace, but it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. I'm curious though, you began by saying this would be a criticism of confessional Christianity. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you think that that view you laid out, which I think is beautiful and I agree with, is at odds with it? confessional christianity
2: yeah by the way this is your fault because you brought the subject up now we could probably talk all day this is cool right i love it (laughs) Um, yeah so i I would say confessional christianity is based on the idea of the god of prohibition that that god Mm -hmm. lacks the lack that god is a complete whole non-conflictual non-antagonistic ultimate being um, no, I think within confessional Christianity there are moments, like people like Anselm, and there's there's moments where this mm. other ad- idea comes out. But that's my main critique that that the confessional church hasn't gone to the radicality of what it means for to have a divided,
4: estrated God, like God of prohibition, in the sense of like the, the 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 God that's always picking on you and like you're wrong, you're wrong, you're sinning, you're sinning, stop doing that or something different.
2: Well, you know, the funny thing is, I'm pro the god of prohibition. Like, it's funny, so uh, Shizek uses this example, which I think is very good, is if you're taking the kid to see the kid's grandparents, uh, traditional parents will say to the kid, you're going to have to see your grandparents. The kid will say, no, no, no. And they'll go, get your coat, get in the car, you're going to see them, right? But enlightened parents will say, oh, little Johnny, you want to go and see grandma? Come on, you really would like to, right? And Shizek says the second is even worse because the first one, at least the kid has an internal place of Uh, Of resistance. When I'm old enough, I won't have to go and see grandma. But in the second case, one, it's false. Like if the kid said, no, I don't want to go, they'll revert back to the number one, get in the car. And secondly, they, they are trying to not only make the kid do something, but make them enjoy it. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is even worse. There's no internal space of like mm-hmm. resistance. So in LA, for example, it's not it's not enough to go to a party and pretend you're having fun. You actually have to have fun. Right. It's terrible, right? <laughs> There's no space for inner yeah. inner resistance. So when in the Bible it says you, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, that's like the parent saying, Don't drink in front of me. Well, of course, you're going to go out and get drunk with your friends, but just yeah. don't do it mm-hmm. in front of me. Right. There is a space for pro for for rebellion. Now So the God of prohibition for me is more advantageous than the God of the demand to enjoy because it creates uh, social solidarity. Um, It creates space for resistance and for fighting. Israel means to fight with God. So it it creates a space for all of that stuff. So I'm quite pro it. I just think... um, uh, so more so than the God of the man to enjoy, which is the secular God today. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we don't live in the God of prohibition anymore, even in the church. You get a religious leader who says you should have sex within the confines of marriage, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're not saying that as a prohibition. Don't have sex outside of marriage. You will hear the evangelical preacher say, because that's the way to enjoy sex best. That's the way you're going to really like it, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. they are also serving the god of the demand to enjoy. The god of prohibition is almost non existence in contemporary society, it's the god of the demand to enjoy, except with the southern Baptists. Except for, yeah, there might be some areas, some people who do it, you know. And you know, in some ways, I think they probably have the greatest critique of society. Um, but the god who is it, itself castrated, which just simply means in philosophical terms, the re-the the, the knowledge that. Reality is asymmetrical. Um, I think is is uh, is the the highest point of religion. That's the highest insight.
4: Yeah. Uh, a few thoughts. One with the parenting thing. The 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 first example of the parents saying, "Look, it is what it is, man. You can't <laughs> do that or put on your coat and, and go." Another thing I like about that to build on your point is that part of what makes good parenting good parenting is that you don't take upon the unrealistic burden of trying to protect your child from the reality of scarcity. And sometimes these so-called enlightened parents, the so-called gentle parents, and I'm not putting everybody in a box. Some people, different people use labels in different ways, but sometimes in our efforts to be like super evolved and non-disciplinary, we try to protect children from the reality that sometimes you can't have what you want in the moment. Sometimes yeah. you have to get creative. Sometimes you just have to accept that this is what you're dealing with and you and you got to negotiate a world that isn't always fighting to accommodate itself yeah. to you. Can I give you an example
2: yeah. of this? Like, in America today, it's like, right, in America, it's a really weird. You go into a shop and people are friendly and smiling and going, oh, how can you help Help you, right? Which is madness, right? You're working in a shop. You should be depressed. Stop being happy, right? But what companies like <laughs> Facebook and Twitter, they don't just demand that their workers work. Now they demand that they be happy right? So it's all about, oh, me. like these people here working in your place, they shouldn't be happy. You have to make them, not only do they have to work, they also have to pretend they like it, right? Mm-hmm. There's no space for, for resistance. So in our contemporary society, it's not like in the old days, you just had a job and it's like, oh, you did a job. You go home and you hate your boss. You know, that nowadays, you have to mm-hmm. wear their merchandise and you have to smile and go, I work for Facebook and it's all wonderful. And the space for inner resistance is completely taken away. Um, so anyway, but this good point is that in our contemporary society, the demand to enjoy means that you even have to like your alienation.
4: Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of this comes from our inability to to make quantitative distinctions without imposing qualitative values over them. So for instance, the number five is greater than the number one, but it's not better than the number one, right? Mm-hmm. So that quantitative distinction between something being bigger and something being smaller doesn't require a qualitative distinction that one thing is better and the other thing is worse. And we do this with our emotions a lot. Josh and I, we we had an episode on positive thinking about this where we take negative emotions, positive emotions. And what that really means is that Positive emotion is one that you enjoy feeling. A uh, negative emotion is one that you don't enjoy. But then we impose the qualitative distinction and we say, negative emotion means I'm a bad person or I'm doing something bad. Positive emotion means I'm a good person. I'm in favor with God. And so when you feel negative emotions like jealousy or sadness or anger, uh oh, you must be guilty of sin. You must be doing something wrong. You must need help. And when you sort of step back and say, well, All of my emotions, just like all of the numbers, are valuable. Some of them I'm going to like more than others, just like friends. Some friends are going to tell me things that are funny all the time and I enjoy hanging out with them. Some friends will criticize me in ways that I benefit from being criticized. All of our feelings have something valuable to offer us. They have something valuable to teach us. And there is a lot of creativity that can come from a place of anger, a lot of self-awareness that can come from a place of jealousy that I might not access if I were just feeling elation all the time. And so I I really like this idea here of just thinking about the diverse range of human experience in a way that kind of neutralizes the tendency to moralize everything in terms of good and bad. And I I accept as as a valid critique of religion that the tendency to do that has certainly been aided, if not amplified significantly by religion, for sure by yeah. religious culture, at least.
1: Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a bit about, I, I love this idea because if I did bring a fundamentalist, pardon the pun yeah. there, because Pete's podcast is called The Fundamentalist, you've, you've taken that word yeah. and repurposed it yeah. and, and maybe even got back to its essence. And I think you would argue you've done the same thing with Christianity to a great extent. If I brought in a fundamentalist Southern Baptist he or she may say, well, Pete's obviously not a Christian, right? And that becomes a definitional game. Mm -hmm. I'm tied Mm -hmm. to these dogmas, and if you don't meet these requirements, these commandments, et cetera, whatever it might be, then therefore you can't
4: own this label. You can't place this on your jacket, so to speak. And And I'm an angel's advocate with that because I do think there's a value to doing that. I do think there is a value to saying, hey, look, There are certain ideas that have been around for a long time, right? Before I was born, there was this religion called Islam. There was this religion called Christianity before I was born. And there can be great value in having a sense of history because something that contemporary culture does a lot is we we pick up labels and we put them down based on what is cool, based on what's trending, based on what's hot, divorced from a sense of historical understanding and then when people get angry at us, they get offended by us, they don't want to associate with us, we're completely confused. Like, right, like, I, I disagree with everything that every denomination of Christianity has taught for a thousand years. And I'm so confused as to why you guys are mad at me for calling myself a Christian. It might be useful to you, right? To have some sort of historical understanding of what this label has meant to the majority of people over history. It doesn't mean you can't call yourself that, right? It's, it's sort of like, if I pick up a dictionary, I have the right as a human being to use whatever word I want in whatever way I choose. But I also shouldn't be surprised if i misunderstood when I use words in unconventional ways. It helps me to know the context for the labels that we use. And so I, I do think there's something valuable about getting clear on what we mean by certain terms. And if we use them in an unorthodox sense, taking the time to make sure that's understood. I think that's important for dialogue.
2: And yeah, in terms of that, then this is a good point for me, for me, then people go like, Pete, you're a theologian, Christian, da, da, da. but then they hear me speak and they can't quite figure out what I believe or what I think or whatever. And it's because so I, I'm a structuralist and by a what I mean. I'm always looking at the underlying structures to things. And uh, for me, uh, you know, like the game of chess, isn't it? You've got a game of chess, uh, you've got the chess pieces and but you can replace any chess piece with anything else you lose a pawn you can put a penny down and that can be the pawn uh there's the there's the imaginary there's what you see and then there's the structure of the game itself the the rules and so for me when i talk about being a christian uh and i'm other things as well but i'm talking about a, a kind of structural dimension that i see operating within the narrative. So it's not about atheism or theism. It's not about beliefs and and in, in gods or angels or it's, it's nothing to do with that at all. It's this interest, and this is why I'm influenced by Soren Kierkegaard. It's uh, it's simply seeing that there is a structure within which you realize that ultimate reality is uh, is divided, and that I think that's a that's a philosophically uh, correct <laughs> position. But then. What I do with my work, pyro theology is develop liturgies and ways in which people um, enter into that truth at an existential level. What um, does that mean, Pyrotheology. theology theology So, well, it was a term that was just thrown around. A friend of mine thought of it one day because we were, I, I heard this Bonaventura Giretti quote, which was, the only church that illuminates is a burning one. I thought, oh, it's very good. The only mm-hmm. church that illuminates is a burning one. And I love the I mm. love the contradiction in it because in one sense it means burn churches to the ground, right? But in another sense, you've got the burning bush. You've got like, you know, this these ideas of burning uh, as a fire of religion. So I love the the element yeah. of it. And we created this evening, this event called Power of Theology. And then I just borrowed it as a term to describe what I do. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it has that notion of fire and burning and destruction. And also, you know, fire is a necessary yeah. thing for like whenever you you burn an area of a field to kind of grow new things out of it. Um, but parotheology really is, for me, the a series of a, a form of life, a, a, an invitation into this freedom from the tyranny of happiness, freedom from the tyranny of certainty, freedom from the tyranny of satisfaction. It is a moving from the idea that the sacred is an object that you love to the idea that the sacred is a depth dimension you discover in the act of love itself. It is a direct embrace of this lack. So it's, you know, connected to Schopenhauer. And going that we need to do this in community. And if we can do that in community, this can be of benefit personally and politically.
4: One of the things I appreciate about the work that you do is the way you create a home for people who would not otherwise have a home because the environment that they perhaps used to call home is one where they didn't feel at home doubting. C.S. Lewis talked about how a person who doubts the existence of God is actually much nearer to God than they were before. Because Mm. in that doubt, they have now discarded all of those ideas of God that are neither worthy of them nor, nor suitable to account for the complexity and nuance of life. And outgrowing immature ideas of God, ideas that don't pay any homage or reverence to God is a necessary part of spiritual growth. And the first encounter with that is doubt. You know, like, I, I mean, you, you even see like you, even in scriptures, there, there are instances of people who have their mind made up about their understanding of God. And then they encounter God and God says one thing and they're like, oh, wait, I'm confused. I, I'm, I'm in a state of doubt. I believe, help my unbelief, yes. you know? Yes, yeah. and, the, and this is, but this
2: because my new book, the next book I'm writing, it's probably going to be called The Unknowing God. So it's not the unknown God, but the unknowing God. Hmm. So what I want to argue is that, because my work started off with doubt, and yes, unknowing, and when we are confronted with reality, there's a certain inherent unknowing. Yeah. But I want to push it further, and this is where most people don't go along with me, maybe I don't even go along with me, Right? Uh, is that I want to argue that it's not just that, that we don't know, but then the unknowing is within the absolute itself. And that's, that again is the difference for me me between confessional Christianity and and radical thought is that in confessional Christianity, usually it's like, I don't know God, but God knows God, right? Uh, Whereas I want to say God doesn't know God either, that there's an unknowing, and by God, I just mean ultimate, just reality. Yeah. Uh, The, there is novelty, spontaneity, non-at-oneness within being itself. So yeah. Okay. I want to go there with you. I I, got to go there with you.
4: And, and. I don't feel the need to force us to agree where we don't actually agree. I think there's plenty of room to disagree. You but, can be wrong. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is one where I don't... I'm not so sure that there's a real disagreement there. And, and, and maybe it's useful to make a distinction between what a religion offers and how knowledgeable its practitioners are of those offerings, right? Because we can find in any religion... People that identify with that religion, but they aren't necessarily uh, the best person to function as a spokesperson for all mm. that that religion teaches or everything that that religion would have to say about various issues. And so, there are a lot of poor understandings of Christianity that Christians themselves are responsible for. Right? Mm. It's not that someone's being unfair. It's like no, like this is actually how many real Christians represent it, and and that's an unfortunate thing. But I, I think about two things when you say the unknowing God, and I and I, I like the sound of that, not just unknown. First, as I think about the nature of knowledge itself, if we just think about it conceptually, the phenomenon of knowing requires a subject-object duality, right? There is the knowing subject and there is the known object. And so in order for me to have knowledge, I must exist in a state of separation from what I know. So. I know that that's a coffee cup because I'm not the coffee cup. I experienced myself as this sort of like dualistic entity. Whatever and whoever God is, God is that which is not merely imminent throughout creation, but also transcendent. God is that which transcends the subject-object duality, that, that we might speak of God as person, but the personhood of God transcends this sort of like individualized, finite experience that we have as people. Although
2: that is what I would disagree with, but keep going, keep going. (laughs) So so I I think about
4: when when Moses is having his burning bush experience you referred to earlier, and he says, all right, you're you're asking me to go talk to Pharaoh and tell him this or that. Who should I tell him sent me? Like, what's your name? And this is an important question because the name determines the identity. So when you tell someone your name, you know, in that culture, it's like, this is the essence of who I am. And God says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. And and, and, and there, there seems to be this declaration of, tell them undifferentiated being sent you. Tell them existence itself sent you. Tell them that which transcends all of your categories entirely, and yet is capable of manifesting itself in, through, and as any of those categories. Tell them that's what sent you. But I'm not gonna give you something finite to hang your hat on, Moses, because whatever you tell them, I am that and more. And so I, I think... The unknowing God is not about a God who lacks insight or is ignorant or stupid or foolish, but rather a God who does not merely know all truth, but a God who is itself the very truth towards which all true proper propositions point.
2: Yes, I mean, that's very orthodox Christianity and Dan—that's very theistic. So, because I'm not a theist, as like, yes, I'm worshiping, that God yeah. is the name for the lack in reality. But yeah. I, I, you know, we could go back and forth but, but all day. We, could, we could use ultimate reality, though. Right? We, we could yeah. say, hold on, we could real say, real say, quick, forget I, about God. I'm going to wrap yeah. up the no, segment. Yes. Oh, this is sorry, our sorry. long <laughs> talk
1: aboutables <laughs> segment. Oh man, because I would be remiss if we also <laughs> didn't talk about because there's this other <laughs> thing. And what I really appreciate about, about both of you is, as opposed to th- throwing out the baby with the bathwater, which we often do, there are a lot of people who have been harmed significantly Mm. by religion and religious traditions or people who report to be religious and then they use that religion to batter others. I think Mm -hmm. of Ryan, my best friend and co-host, like Jehovah's Witness, his whole family used religion to sort of batter him for most of his childhood. Professor Sean is uh, in a very similar boat, like is excommunicated from his own parents at Ryan is the same way as, as a result. And far worse things have even happened than that. We're talking about sexual abuse, child abuse, especially in the Catholic church. And as opposed to saying, well, I'm now going to throw all of that out. What you've said, both of you have said in different ways through our own conversations Is no, there's still great wisdom in these ancient wisdom traditions. Whether it's Christianity, Catholicism. By the way, some Christians would say Catholics aren't Christians, right? And so, starts to get it starts to get really fascinating here as well, where we get so narrow in our viewpoint, and we use that righteousness, that self righteousness to then point down, to put ourselves on a pedestal, to blame others, but then also to abuse others. And so I'd love to wrap up this Talk Aboutables segment by maybe briefly addressing the Mm. atrocities Mm. that have happened in the name of religion.
2: And maybe, you know, I'll start by saying, so in my position, because for me, confessional, like any beliefs for me are just ideological. So when when I say Christian, what I mean is simply, Christianity, and the reason why I call it Christian is a very simple reason. Uh, because ideas come into existence, just like TV sets, just like inventions, you know. And the idea of a self-divided God um, is relatively basically new. You have this Christ crucified, it's a Pauline notion. Very, very quickly, I'll just tell you the genealogy. is: The Apostle Paul has this insight into this idea that God died. He says God died, and he doesn't quite figure out, but he's, that that is something to do with salvation. To participate in the death of God is, has some sort of cultic significance, and cultic as in this small religious community. So Paul has this notion, death of God. Then Luther makes it into a theological thing. So Luther, what he does is he kind of says... There's something about this is so countercultural like No one would imagine the eternal, something that cannot die, dying. So there's something true about that because we would never have invented it. So Luther kind of raises it to a theological point. Then Hegel brings it to a philosophical dimension, raises it to the, the dignity of philosophy. And then Nietzsche makes it an existential category. So Nietzsche is very connected to the Apostle Paul because Nietzsche says, God is dead, you have killed him, we have to go through this death of God in order to overcome modern life. And then uh, Freud and Lacan create a technology for entering into the death of God. So that, in a very brief nutshell, is a genealogy of the death of God. And the reason why I mention that is whenever I talk about Christianity, all all I mean is anyone who embraces the self-division of reality. That's all I mean. That's all I mean. That's it. Like it's to, to to embrace the death of God, anyone who has undergone the death of god i e anyone who has existentially experienced the loss of satisfaction, the loss of the object that will fix everything, anyone who has been able to embrace the fragmented nature of being, that's what I mean by Christianity, nothing else
5: <laughs> yeah. okay you, you
4: to you, the atrocities go ahead
1: you you join the The Catholic Church mm-hmm. relatively recently. Yep. And you did that understanding what they've also been blamed for. I mean, I know I have owned my own experience with this. My mother was a nun before she had me. And uh, a point after she had me, she was forced by a priest whom essentially molested her to, well, to have an abortion. So she was forced by a Catholic priest and and you're like, okay, well, that's a, a one-off thing. And it turns out, no, these aren't one-off things. There is, and one, one might argue, a systemic issue within that organization. And I find it really difficult to parse personally, same with Jehovah's Witnesses or any other uh, group in which there might be wisdom. But also,
4: does that mean I'm supporting these awful atrocities? I, wanna, I don't want to just lean into that question. I want to step all up in it. Just as the greatness of a person can be measured by their willingness to take criticism, I also think the greater a religion, the more willing it should be to face criticism. In fact, I think when people say the Catholic Church is responsible for a lot of evil, I think they're being much too kind. I think the Catholic Church, if the claims that it makes about itself are true, is responsible for all of it. I think if the Catholic Church is what it purports to be, an institution that was established by Christ himself for the life of the world, then that means we should look at all of the suffering in the world, we should look at all of the evil, all of the wrongdoing, the kind that's coming out of our church and the kind that's happening outside of our church and say it is all a reflection Of what we are failing to do. It's a reflection of our own hypocrisy. It's a reflection of our own unconsciousness. It's a reflection of lack in our own devotional life. So I think people are being way too kind when they present one or two criticisms or 20 million criticisms and say, you're not responsible for everything, but you're responsible for these. I say all of it. And I make no excuses for the church. Two things I'll say about how we reconcile being a practitioner or a believer or whatever you want to call it with the reality of hypocrisy or evil in an organization. The first thing I'll say, and this was an important realization for me in my spiritual journey, is that no matter what kind of belief or organization or non-belief or non-organization you identify with, one thing I can guarantee you is there will always be people who identify with the same thing and who believe and behave in ways that are embarrassing to you. And so you can't pick what you do in life based on the absence of anybody else who might be doing the same thing but be going about it in a ridiculous way. Because no matter what you do, there's going to be somebody else who claims to be and do the same thing and they're going to be embarrassing to you. So you don't get to do anything. You have to live from your convictions with the awareness that there will be people who claim to have the same convictions and they are complete idiots, complete screw-ups. Secondly, just as you might look at a church or an organization and say, I refuse to be a part of that because of that idiot over there, you got to remember that you will always be that for whatever you do for someone else. In other words, every single one of us is the idiot over there for what we believe to someone else. Yes. Every one of us is the idiot over there to what we practice for someone else. We are someone's reason for not making some positive change in their life at least according to the story that they're telling. I guess the last thing I say, because we could talk about this stuff for a long time, because there's a lot of things to be said about abuses in the Catholic church, abuses for which no excuse should be made, abuses for which the church should be held accountable, abuses for which the church should take ownership of, abuses for which the church should acknowledge its failures. But the last thing I'll say about this for now, we can come back to this anytime, because I'm extremely comfortable talking about this. It's this, it's for me, Any organization or institution that is capable of doing good and is living beneath that ideal and allowing itself to be used to perpetuate evil is a place that I want to be a part of because I believe I have something to offer that can help create change. Not because I'm the world's biggest revolutionary who's going to turn things around all by myself, but the only way that good organizations, good institutions, and good communities which have gone awry can ever be redeemed is if by people who don't participate in evil evil choose to become part of those organizations and institutions and communities and choose to criticize it from within and also who choose to represent the positive things that are still there and that's just the person that I choose to be but I do understand I do empathize with the people who have been hurt and for the people who have been hurt I do not stand towering above you saying quit making excuses I say I can only speak for me, but man, I'm sorry that that was done. That's absolutely terrible. The church needs to do a better job of apologizing, holding itself accountable, taking ownership of those things, getting rid of people or disciplining people who do those things and actually being the light of the world as it purports itself to be.
1: Well, that's the intro to the podcast. We're just <laughs> getting started, y'all.
2: <laughs>
1: let's uh, let's pivot to some something a bit more fun. We talked about this with Jamie Kilstein last week. And and I thought I'd bring Pete back in and sort of do a, a redux of this discussion. We were doing a more about less segment where we were reading something from the Paris Review. And in there, a character was pondering what he would do if he won the lottery, which was $87 million. And what he started thinking about was less about the things that he would bring into his life, but what he would buy his way out of the things that he would not do anymore. And so I'd like to ask you, Peter Rollins, if you won the lottery tomorrow for $87 million, Mm -hmm. in what ways would your life change? What things might you accumulate? And also, what would you
2: buy your way out of? That's a great question, because it's a very good thought experiment to go, would you leave your job tomorrow if you won the lottery? (laughs) And if you answer yes to that, you're alienated. If you answer yes to that, no matter how much you like your job, whatever, there's something about your job that is not satisfying you at a creative and deep level. Um, and most people, it's very sad, of course, in this contemporary society. Most people cannot answer, "I would stay in my job." Right? Most people can't say that. I am very lucky. Uh, because I can't say that, although it's because I've never really got a job. I'm too lazy. Like, I just started what I was doing when I was 17, which is philosophy and, you know, thinking about stuff. And somehow, and for a long time, lived in a squat for many years. I was very poor. Didn't pay taxes until I was in my 30s. Um, But eventually... Somehow, weirdly, it's working for me. I don't know how. I do want to know how. If I ask the question, I was saying to you earlier, I'm like the cat in a cartoon with the legs running off the cliff, and if I look down, I'll fall. Like if I actually ask the question, "How am I doing this?" I'll probably I'll probably feel. Um, but I've been very fortunate to be able to say genuinely, if I won the lottery wouldn't change anything. I might get a better setup, like the setup you've got here, you know, and you've spent years working, you know, do a better quality podcast, do, you know, better quality stuff. Um, but I'm very, very lucky to be doing what I love. And for the people who are listening, it's like, if you can answer that and go, no, I would leave tomorrow, my job, mm. then of course, that's pragmatic because you have to pay your bills, you have to live. It's incredibly difficult today at the moment in, in, uh economically. But can you start to imagine what you could do where you would answer that question? No. And is it possible to somehow begin to work your way towards that in some small way Mm. uh, over the course of a year, two years, five years? And it's very, very difficult. I can tell you that my answer to that question in my 20s
1: what if at first, or in my late teens even, it would have been, oh, here are the things I'm going to buy. Mm. You give me $87 million, here's the mansion or mansions. Mm. Here are the vacations. Here are the clothes, the really expensive clothes full of expensive clothes. Here is the Range Rover I'm going to buy. And the fascinating thing is you don't need to $87 million to get most of the things you think you want. Yeah. You can have nice clothes without being a millionaire. You can have a nice car without being a millionaire. You can even have a nice house, maybe not in LA, um, (laughs) but you can have a nice house in Dayton, Ohio without being a millionaire. I know because throughout my 20s, I never won the lottery once, but I started making good money. I grew up really poor. Oh, this isn't making me happy. You know, it will money and the things that money acquires, right? But of course, as we were talking about earlier with all the Schopenhauer stuff, many of those things made me miserable. Why did they make me miserable? Because I got them and they didn't do what I thought they were going to do. And the same thing is true with most lottery winners. They get what they thought they wanted and they end up going mad, right? Because money is an amplifier and it amplifies our misery It amplifies our poor habits. It amplifies the way that we behave. Now, if we behave in ways that are kind to others, money might enable us to be more kind to others, right? And so I talked about this briefly on the private podcast in depth, but I'll I'll just sum it up here like this, that my life would not change appreciably now if I won the lottery. My house wouldn't change, my car wouldn't change, my career or creations would not change. The people in this room would be paid more money than they're paid now. They're all paid very well and we give them raises I felt regularly. That's what they said to me. <laughs> <laughs> we pay them to be happy. <laughs> and uh, but I would pay them better because I would have more capacity to do so. I'm mm. not allergic to money. Yes. Mm. Yes. I make money now, I give most of it away, mm. whether it's to people that I work with or to charities, projects, etc. creating, you know, creating the oh. studio costs a lot of money to create a studio like this, but my life by itself would not change. The yes. ornamentation changes slightly, but even like my material possessions would not change one bit. My clothes wouldn't change, my vehicle wouldn't change, my furniture wouldn't change. I don't feel compelled to want more if I got more money. And that is the key to happiness for me is discovering that enough point. I already have enough. And maybe money would amplify the lives of the people around me. That's wonderful. So I'll take more of it so I can contribute beyond myself more. But for me, I could tell you definitively that my life wouldn't change at
2: all. Yes.
4: I, I want to give people an alternative thought experiment to this question because there are many variations of it that we ask in every generation. What would you do if money were no object Or in this version, what would you do if you won the $87 million lottery? It's very useful to think about your answers, how that would be different and how you can perhaps start you know, pursuing or integrating some of those things into your life now without the money. But here's my alternative thought experiment. Ask yourself, what would you do if you knew for sure that you would not only never win the lottery in your life, but you would also never get another raise, you'd never make more money than you currently make? What would that mean to you? It's sort of similar to the question about if a demon arrived and said, you're gonna to have to repeat your life over and over again. What does that mean to you? Does that make you feel depressed? What if someone says, your finances are never gonna improve, it's gonna be exactly what it is. What does your life look like when you stop orienting yourself towards the future as something that's going to promise you a better life than the one you're already creating?
1: I wanna move over to a new segment that we have, Pete. Maybe you can help bring a, a philosophical bent to these fun segments that we have. Danny has some photos for us. We're going to start with the segment we call amass it or trash it. Usually listeners will send in something. Hey, we have this this object. Should I hold on to it or should I let it go? So feel free to get as existential as you'd like for this. Today's listener is actually the minimalist's very own Malabama. <laughs> and she's asking whether we should amass or trash what do, what do you call this, Alabama? Get on mic and, and, and talk to me about this.
3: This is my deck of Yu-Gi-Oh cards. This is a trading card game that came out 20 years ago, and I played it when it first came out, uh, at least to the U.S. in 2002. It started in Japan in 99. Um, but it is... I, I refer to it lovingly as anime chess. It is a strategy-style sty- uh, game that I have... Come back to and have been revisiting a lot of my nostalgic hobbies. And as much as I really enjoy it, it's not that I don't use it. In fact, I was shuffling and adding new cards to this fixed amount just last night. Oh, wow. The problem is that I have a few of those seven tendencies on the Enneagram scale like Ryan does. Mm. And I can get a little carried away when I enjoy something and the more, I throw more, more, myself... more, more,
1: more, yes. is what you... give okay. me the
3: fire hose of Yu-Gi-Oh cards. Have you,
1: have you ever played 52-card <laughs> pickup? Uh, yeah. <laughs> not in a long time. <laughs> mm. So Don't ever yes. do that to my daughter. She gets very, very upset. <laughs> Especially uh, since I do it to her every day. <laughs> 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 I just walk her to her room in the morning. Oh, well, it's time for 52-card pickup. So, uh, uh, thank you. it's not that you don't use it, but... Just because we use something is not a great reason to continue to hold on to it, yes. either, right? Because then what happens? we get into the prison of use. Oh, I should use this every because the minimalists say the seasonality rule, the 9090 rule, which you can find in our minimalist rule book for free, the slash rulebook. Have you used this thing in the last 90 days? Are you going to use it in the next 90 days? If the answer is no to both, get rid of it. But sometimes I'll say, well, I'll I'll force myself. Here's how I'll get around that rule. I'll use it one time every 180 days. And therefore, I will circumvent this rule in my life. These rules are not meant to be prison bars. They're meant to be boundaries that are flexible and changeable. And the question I would uh, have for you, Mallory, is do these add value to your life?
3: They do. But I still feel a little bit guilty with them, which is why I bring it to you guys. Why do you feel guilty? So where they add value is they allow me to tap into a community that I didn't have when I first played this in 2002. I have a whole group of close friends that we all come together and we all play against each other. Everybody brings their own style and you can see part of their character, their um, personality reflected in the cards that they bring. It's very intellectually compelling. Even my husband is in this game and we will duel each other like after dinner. Like it is so much fun to have that nice challenge. Well, why are you even considering getting rid of the deck then? Well, I I don't
1: understand
4: the... (laughs) Do you feel that someone else... making me want to play this game. I, I know.
3: It feels like it has the potential to be a slippery slope. I have already found myself tempted to go, okay, this deck is really good. I have a lot of really great plays that I can do with this. But you know what would be cool is if I had a deck themed like this and a deck themed like this. And suddenly I'm branching outside of the bounds of my little card holder right there.
1: That's what I love about this, though, is you have a boundary set up and you can't go beyond that. I'm thinking about my wife. Her mother recently gave her this box of all her childhood memories, right? The memorabilia her artwork, etc., But she had to reduce it down from like five, six, seven boxes into one small box. And in doing that, you got rid of some excess that otherwise would have made for clutter. This doesn't seem cluttered. If it starts to extend beyond that, it certainly seems like clutter. But that's my practical wisdom. Pete, do you have anything more
2: philosophical? Well, I've got a question first, which are the laminated ones more valuable?
3: Not necessarily. Ah. Those are... And these didn't exist when they first came out, but those are just card protectors. Ah. Um, It also just helps you identify your cards between other people's. Sometimes they can get into the other player's field. But the trick with the cards is you buy them in mystery packs. So in order to add cards to your deck, you buy these mystery packs and it could have things that would be really great with your deck or it could have things that really are useless to you. So... To continue to play and improve your deck, I end up with a lot of useless cards. And I can share those with my husband, but what you don't see outside of this... Here, you can this... have
1: my useless yeah. thing. Yes, basically.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what you don't see outside of this boundary is he has two or three of those and a whole binder where they are you know, in their own laminated sleeves. So we're both trying to navigate how do we balance this without spending ridiculous amounts of money on specific cards, but not having a bunch of cards that we may never
2: use. Yeah. Because it's funny because I've heard that rule. What's it? It's a 90 days, 90... Yeah, we we call it the 90-90 rule rule, or or the
1: seasonality rule. So basically, have I used this thing in the last 90 days? Yeah. If the answer is no, am I, be honest with myself, am I going to use it in the next 90 days? If the answer is no to both, then I give myself permission to let it go.
2: Because then... I'm thinking of when I I was I was doing this festival a couple of years ago, and afterwards I was really exhausted, and I downloaded a little game on my phone called Tune Blast, and I started playing it, and I was playing it too much, and so every now and again I delete it, and mm-hmm. then eventually burn because there's another rule which is which sounds like the opposite rule for you is going like actually it's not I'm not using it as I'm using it too am I using yes. it too much therefore if I get rid of it. Will that open up more time for me and et cetera, et cetera. So I was just thinking of my blast addiction when you were saying that (laughs) is occasionally I have to get rid of blast because not because I'm not using it, but because I'm using it too much.
1: (laughs) I'm not going to prescribe this to you, Malabama, but here's what I would do if I were in your shoes. I would put, I would take that seasonality rule, sort of the inverse seasonality rule. I'd put it away for a season. Ooh. And see what that opens up because you're removing it. This is sort of like you're able to bring it back in if necessary, Mm -hmm. but remove it for 90 days. And if you remove it for 90 days and you say, oh, I'm really depriving myself. I miss this. I miss the community. I miss the experience. I miss the interacting with my husband in, in this way. Then by all means, don't deprive yourself. Bring it back. But if you get rid of it for 90 days and it's, why did I ever have this? I'm so happy. I have this free time now, this extra space, the less worry. Uh, the the mental clutter that's associated with this then yeah then give
2: yourself permission to let it go that's good and by the way you can maybe give it to somebody a friend then because if it's just in a drawer you'll Mm. be tempted so you might have to go and even if I come with a knife and threaten to kill you and your entire family you're not to give me the cards back
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know friends that would love to have that that deck in their possession yeah I'll hold it for you
4: (laughs) I'm just curious um, is it possible to approach the game like poker where you don't improve your deck, but you just improve the way you play the game?
3: Yes. Yes, most certainly. And that's where a lot of the time gets invested because it is strategy-based. The cards tell you exactly what they can do. Right. So a lot of it is remembering what each card allows you to do. If it's in this position, then you can do this and so on. That's what kind of got me investing a lot of time in it coming back to it because now the game is more complicated. They literally have something called an extra deck that is included in your deck Oh,
1: no, 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 no. Yeah. No, no, no. We're, we're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, Alabama here, yeah. take this from me. Jordan, make sure you blur her out so she remains a disembodied voice throughout the entire podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to checkout line wisdom. Another segment we have here, Pete, where we go over some wisdom from the checkout line. You know, when you're at the store, you're at the grocery, and you see all of the impulses, the, mm. the impulse candy, the gum, the little plastic trinkets. I'm not even sure what they are half the time. The chocolates. But then there are also these magazines that have all this wisdom or supposed wisdom. And so we use this segment to find some wisdom or some faux wisdom and sort of pick it apart. And this one, you'll see here, This uh, we'll put it up here on the screen. Uh, Jordan has it here on the screen if you're watching the video version of the podcast. This says brush up. Alabama, can you read that to me by chance? Is that possible? Because it's too far away for me to read. You'll see a picture here, Pete, of it looks like a Pepsi yeah. cup. And there are two, two brushes, toothbrushes yeah. in there.
3: Brush up. At the cinema, we bought a carton of soft drink and after finishing it, took the empty home. It makes a great designer toothbrush holder. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So
1: this presupposes a few things. Yeah. One is that one should have a toothbrush holder. It also presupposes that I'm going to buy a soft drink at a movie. And in a weird way, it gives me an excuse now to buy a calorie laden toxic drink so that I can then use the trash.
2: This is an excuse to hold on to trash.
4: I need to improve my teeth. I'm buying a Pepsi.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But do you not need a toothbrush? You must need a toothbrush holder. You're saying it presupposes a toothbrush holder. What do you do? Do you just balance it very, very carefully every day?
4: As a minimalist, he has yes. learned how to make use of space. So he simply suspends his toothbrush in space. Wow. I'm reminded of uh,
1: David Foster Wallace has a novel called Infinite Jest, and in there there is this horrifying scene. There's a guy who breaks into people's homes. And when he breaks into their home, he steals their stuff. But also, he sort of messes with the people who live in the home. And what he'll do is he will take a Polaroid picture of him with their toothbrush up his butt. Uh, and he'll wait 60 <clears throat> days to send the Polaroid way too uh, much time. to the family. <laughs> and I... I pay good money for that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway,
2: uh, I've digressed considerably from this. But what I'll say is... So is that your wife saying that's your toothbrush holder? Because <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is too much information. Yes, it's my wife, so it's fine.
1: <laughs> I call her my toothbrush holder.
2: No, well, actually, uh,
1: last week we went over my junk drawer and I keep a toothbrush in there. So I actually have more than one toothbrush, which is not very minimalist of me. Mm. But one thing I do is I keep a toothbrush in my kitchen, not in a toothbrush holder. It's in my junk drawer because I don't want to wake her in the morning because I get up really early and then... That way, I can brush my teeth in the kitchen. Don't have to run the sink in the uh, in the bathroom that's next to our bedroom. Anyway, I um, yes, I have a toothbrush holder, but I would be completely fine without it. It does augment my experience of life. However, I will tell you this: that while I don't want form to follow function completely form is important beauty is important our friend rob bell talks about this quite a bit the, the importance of aesthetics unfortunately we get confused and then we think the only thing important is aesthetics and then we buy something that looks really great but it works poorly but then we see something like this and i suppose it works it doesn't seem like it even works that well when you're looking at this photo
2: here and it all it's also hideous yeah and so two I don't, toothbrushes.
4: So maybe you need two and one toothbrush in each, but that seems like a lot. <laughs> so there, there's, there's, there's something about the spirit behind it that I like, but, but I think there's kind of a critical fallacy that it makes. The, the spirit behind it is, hey, anytime you use an object, you can recycle it and make it useful towards something else. Love that. Right? Lo- love the spirit behind it. The intent is good. You drink a soda. And now you can use your empty soda can as a toothbrush holder. But I think the fallacy is something along the lines of just because I recycle it, I have to recycle it in my home. It's sort of like the wasted food problem. Hey, Josh, you better eat all that food. Otherwise, it's going to go to waste. Well, that doesn't mean a good place to waste it is my stomach, right? It's going to go to waste anyway. If I force myself to eat food that I don't need, trust me, it's going to waste and it's not going to feel good to me. Right? Mm. The solution has to be something deeper than that. It has to be something like, you know, uh, making better decisions ahead of time about how much food I order or how much food I buy or something along those lines. So just because something is better off recycled doesn't mean it's better off recycled in your home. It looks like in this case, you don't have to throw the, the uh, soda can, you know, in your backyard, you can just put it in a recycle bin or find something, find some way to put it to use outside of your home. <laughs> Let's move on to advertisements suck. This is not a little segment we do where we talk about
1: a sucky ad. When I say sucky, I don't mean morally bad. I don't mean that advertisements are evil. I mean that I'm grossed out by them the same way I'm grossed out by puke or diarrhea. An advertisement is essentially the same thing to me. And here's why. I never seek out advertisements. Now, one might argue, what about the Super Bowl? Okay, set that aside, right? I'll seek out those advertisers to critique them the same way I seek out these advertisements to critique them uh, as well. And But what I'm saying here is that I'm never happy. I'm never like, oh, I really wish, you know what? Pete's podcast is good, The Fundamentalist. You know what make it better? Ads, mm-hmm. a lot of ads. In fact, let's fill it, pepper it with ads. And so is it possible to do ads artfully and tastefully? Yeah, there's certainly the exception. I told the story we had Matt Nathanson on the podcast a few weeks ago. Ryan and I walked out of the Emmys. You know, we were nominated for oh, an yeah. Emmy recently and a we walked Yeah. That was just a brag. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but we the reason we walked out is we we not not because we didn't win the Emmy, which we didn't. Yeah. So we didn't walk out when we didn't win the Emmy. That'd be a little obnoxious, <laughs> right? So we waited a little bit. But then I saw the uh, the advertise or the the category was for the best advertisement. And I was like, oh, what are, we, what are we doing here, right? Because this is sort of the antithesis of what Ryan and I talk about. And so when I look at these ads, when we look at these ads collectively, I like to point out some absurdity. And this one is obviously absurd. This one, as you'll see if you're watching the video version, is for vitamin donuts. Let's talk about the problem with an ad like this. Now, obviously, this is an old timey ad. I think it'd be hard to pull something like this off today. Consumers have gotten have smartened up a bit. And so we find more intricate ways to manipulate people now, right? You're gonna live your best life, et cetera. But this is the equivalent of that. This is sort of the old time equivalent. And what it is saying is that there are micronutrients that you need in your body, and we will deliver them to you through this poison, basically. You will get what you need through this toxin, through this poison. It's the only way that we can deliver these vitamins to you. First ad that I've hated.
4: Because <laughs> I defended Burger King. Well, we have the Burger King ad on here and I defended that one. <laughs> but this sounds like a, a, a perfectly good way to, to ruin two enjoyable experiences in isolation. If I'm going to enjoy a donut, Whatever you want to say about it, I don't want you ruining it with vitamins. The fact that I'm eating a donut means I have made my decision what my priority is in this moment. I want something that tastes good, that's delicious at the expense of my micronutrient cow. Please don't ruin it. And if I want vitamins, please don't ruin it with a donut. Give me one or the other without the other, Pete, not talk- both at the same time. Sorry. Mm-hmm.
1: Pete, talk to me about the philosophy behind uh, trying to trick people into wanting something Good, but you know pack or wanting something that is bad, but packaging in a way that is good. I'm not using those words morally, but uh, you know yeah, what i'm saying yeah,
2: yeah no it's it's interesting, and like we have you know coffee without caffeine and we have you know sodas without sugars we've got you know this is often the thing that we're trying to do is try to give the one thing meat burgers without meat you know there's uh, there's lots of examples <laughs> of us trying to kind of reconcile the uh the contradiction um uh, you know, people without toxicity only fans sex without the toxicity of the subjective other we've got um we uh, we have all sorts of ways to try to um to take the the badness out of something I mean, only fans is a good example actually because in a, in a society where we're increasingly wary of the other, the danger of the other, and you know what they'll say or should I approach someone in a bar or whatever um, what you want to do is you want to have more purity. So, you know, I, mm. I think I've talked about it before, but we live in a kind of purity culture age, um, political purity and uh, sexual. So, so it only fans is a purity culture because it it offers sex without the toxicity of the subjective other. You pay something, you get something in return. It's there's no toxic other. Um, so this is obviously appealing to us, uh, even in terms of technology, technologies that will help us only hang out with people who are the same as us. Uh, where like in virtual reality, you could literally mute people who have different political, cultural views to you. Uh, it's, it's this desire to take the toxicity of the what's in the donut, what's toxic, take it out. Um, so we just purely from a philosophical perspective, it's like you can't really have one without the other. There's a, um, and actually, that's what makes sexual relationships fun. Mm-hmm. is precisely the toxicity of the subjective other, the risk of the other. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of things to say, but that was just the first thought that came into my mind. You, you're I'm thinking remi- of OnlyFans for some reason. <laughs> you, you're reminding me of... Can well, you plug my OnlyFans, by the way? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's uh, patreon.com slash Peter Rollins. Yes, that's
2: right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And,
1: uh, and by the way, we support... Peter, on Patreon. I don't think you'll see any lewd content, although it's yeah. lewd in a different way. Yes. <laughs> and uh, some of the best stuff that he creates mm. is over on his Patreon. But you're reminding me of one of my favorite podcasters. He's a sex advice columnist, Dan Savage. And mm. he talks about how you know, kink shaming, part of the thing that actually makes the kink hot to people, to attractive to people, is the shame. Mm. Because if we remove all the stigma all the shame from the kink, then it also loses its power in a way. Maybe you could talk about that a bit.
2: Yeah, well, no, absolutely. Um, there's In all sorts of ways, uh, secrecy and obstacle and impossibility generate desire in lots of interesting ways. Sometimes, you know, obsessives desire what's impossible. Hysterics generally desire what's under threat of being taken away. Um, even if you've got loads of money, uh, you might have to fantasize that you 'll lose it all in order to be able to enjoy it, like you have to build in some sort of impossibility or transgression the 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 really interesting thing but is that transgression is not very transgressive usually so uh, in society, for example, you take um Uh, this public school system in the UK and you go to some Eton College where you're trained to be respectful and learn all the rules of society and you're going to govern soberly and that's where the royalty are trained, that's where future prime ministers will be. But then you'll have a transgressive area where you get drunk and you're terrible and you do sexual acts and crazy stuff, right? You'll have some secret society that's transgressive, the complete opposite. But what's interesting is that transgressive space is precisely what allows the system to run by having that Mm. little gas release valve of that place allows. So our society, and that's kind of, uh, the technical definition of perverse in psychoanalysis is that we kind of live in a perverse society that precisely because we're allowed to go crazy at the weekends and do, and go and maybe break the law in small ways, speed or get drunk and fight or whatever, is, it's precisely that which means we go back on a Monday and go back into your job and do it for the weekend where, again, we can go crazy and let off steam. Um, so there is this really interesting thing on every society doesn't just tell you what is acceptable and unacceptable. Every society tells you what's acceptable, what the acceptable unacceptable is, and then there's the unacceptable. And, uh, you Mm. know, if you want to really change things, you you can't do the acceptably unacceptable. You have to do the unacceptable. (laughs) By the way, if you have a
1: a master trash it for us, if you have checkout line wisdom for us, or a sucky advertisement send a picture over podcast at minimalists.com is the email. Malabama will select that for a future episode. We could use a lot of those. We could use your voicemails as well. 406-219-7839 or email your voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. A couple more segments for you real quick obsolete object. So this is something that you've lived with for a while, but it ceased to be valuable at some point. It becomes obsolete in your own life. And usually we'll talk about an item like maybe it's a dishwasher or cologne or something like that. We have something in honor of Pete that's a bit more esoteric right now. Uh We have the shopping mall. Uh Now, Anne-Marie has a statement about this, a comment. Malabama, would you like to read her statement, please?
3: Observation. Many of the malls in my area are going out of business or greatly reducing the number of establishments. Storage companies are now moving in and setting up shop in the places we used to buy all that stuff. It's like all the stuff we bought is returning to its original home. Deep thoughts.
1: It reminds me of Alan Watts when he talks about being born is waking up after never having gone to sleep. For whatever reason, I'm reminded of that. but And then death is sort of the opposite of that. It's going to sleep without ever having to wake up again. <laughs> and there's a cycle, right? And the same thing is true with our stuff. I find it really fascinating. The picture you'll see on the screen right here is, uh, which you can see right there, this is a real mall that Ryan and I used to work in. This is the town mall in Middletown, Ohio. My whole family is from Middletown, Ohio. Aptly named because it's in the middle of Cincinnati and Dayton, Middletown. And they uh, this mall, this is picture, I believe, is from 2019. And you could see in this picture, actually, there's one store that's lit up. Of course, it's like Bath and Body Works because they didn't get the memo that malls were dying. And, And so this mall is one of the creepiest places I've been recently. I went there again this year. Remember when we were on tour, TK? We were in Columbus together. Yeah. Well, I was staying in Dayton and I drove down to Middletown and I saw this mall was open still, which I was shocked by. And I walk into the mall. It's wintertime. The heat is not on. So I could see my breath. The doors were open and let me right in. The Muzak is playing overhead, creepily. There's gumball machines still filled with gumballs that no one eats. There's like these different sort of the ponies you can ride for a quarter there is nothing but abandoned stores all throughout and at first i look around i'm like oh there's that store's closed that wait a minute there's no stores wait a minute there are no customers in here i'm the only person in this mall and i'm walking around and realizing that we have we've reached this transition point we've in many ways transitioned out of the shopping mall experience. That doesn't mean that we're consuming any less. It means the way that we consume has changed. We're now buying things online in droves. In fact, we've removed all the friction, and so we're probably consuming more on average as a result because before, you used to have to get into your car and drive to the mall and put your winter coat on, walk through the mall and and wait in line, and, oh, I have to put it on layaway because I can't afford it, or whatever it was. We had all this friction that prevented overabundant consumption, excessive consumption, consumerism. It didn't completely prevent it, but it added some friction so that we Mm. didn't slide everywhere. Now, when I look at the town mall in Middletown, Ohio, I see a carcass of consumerism. But consumerism has been reborn now through online shopping, through Instagram ads. And so these places, quite often, Amazon is actually buying a lot of these shopping malls and they're turning them into fulfillment warehouses from which they send you. Why did that now why is Amazon buying them? Because they're close to highways, almost always close to highways, which makes them a great distribution hub. They're abandoned, so they can get you can get a great uh, deal on buying the building. And you just fill it with stuff and instead of having go to go to the mall now. So yes, the mall is obsolete, but it doesn't mean that it has stopped consumerism
2: yeah. at all. The Schopenhauerian idea of this is like this drive is eternal. This drive is always at work, but how it manifests itself, how it represents itself. So will and representation. So how it represents itself is changing. So for example, well, we eventually learn that shopping malls are a bit depressing. We eventually, the the luster of that kind of begins to fade, but then new forms of consumption arise. So we're also consuming differently. Like people now want to consume things that are that are designer, that our small brand, like so your coffee that comes from a a small coffee maker that maybe you watch on YouTube or whatever it is, um, you have to, what happens is continually, we kind of learn that something doesn't work. So we find something else that we think that works. Uh, And so now as well, we're also buying. Uh, lifestyles which is quite different we never bought lifestyles before so there's consumerism has to find new avenues new ways of selling because the old ways eventually we go that didn't work but the problem is we don't it's like people converting from one religion to another not converting out of conversion itself it's like you're kind of going you might move from one fashion to another but you're still in fashion you might move from one thing that will fulfill you oh I think you know, religion will fulfill me. Now I think psychedelic enlightenment will fulfill me. Now I think polyamory will fulfill me. Now I think commodity satisfaction will fulfill me. Just Sat's God. One thing hasn't changed. You still think something's going to fulfill you. So I know loads of people who go from religion into uh, sexual liberation, psychedelic enlightenment, commodity satisfaction. It's so, like almost everybody I know, um, they don't find a way to, um,
4: to escape
2: the desire for that itself.
4: You know, one one aspect I'll add to what the death of shopping malls could positively indicate is that there's been a shift in more people identifying as creators. With the internet, we have a greater ability to distribute goods and resources without going through a centralized hub, which means unlike 50, 60 years ago, you can be a nobody in society's eyes, you can write a book without anybody's permission, you can put it up online and sell it to someone who lives in a different state. You once needed someone's permission to do that. Right. Or you at least had to be good to do that, right? Now you can create something that's terrible and just put it out there. That's right. And and, and so now our ability to bake bread, to write books, to build things and to sell it to someone the next state over, the next city over is increasing, and so I think what's happening is Creativity is becoming more decentralized, and we're witnessing our habits of consumption following a similar pattern.
1: Got One more segment for you today. It's called Photo Friday Home Tour. This is our third installment of this, where TK, Ryan, and I take a photo from one of our homes and try to show you that minimalism isn't about the minimalism you might see in a magazine, you, where something is perfect pristine but only in that two-dimensional frame and everything outside of it can be chaos right in fact i was talking to danny i don't worry i won't give away any of the details but he was working with someone recently and they were trying to show a sort of decluttered home on video but everything outside of the frame was chaos it was the opposite of a decluttered home and i want to meet in the middle i want to show you what a decluttered home looks like, meaning the absence of clutter, but also the absence of perfectionism, the absence of trying to make it complete. And so what we have here is a photo of my living room, which is really unfinished right now. I've titled this one Towers of Babel. I have two bookshelves. Uh, They're called the Story Bookshelf from Design Within Reach, since I know a bunch of people are going to ask about it. So there you go. What I'll tell you here is that these bookshelves or my living room in general, it's not only is it pretty simple, it's, it's incomplete. I don't have a rug in there right now. We're waiting on a, I sold all my furniture. So I sold everything when we moved, like literally my landlord came in and he was like, Hey, you do a great job. Who does your interior design? I said, well, I do. He said, how much would it cost to buy all of your furniture? And so I gave him a number and he said, okay. And so I sort of just walked away, but I got rid of everything. (laughs) sort of accidentally in the process. I sold everything except my clothes, basically. And so we had to sort of start from scratch. And we're slowly populating our new living room here. But what I want to show people is exactly what Pete talks about, is making peace with the lack. Mm -hmm. It's going to be months and months and months before certain things show up. And in fact, I think these bookshelves aren't going to end up staying in our living room. It seems It's a little too complex for me. And so we'll probably move them into our office space. And the reason I knew that is I asked my daughter, Ella, do you like the way the, the bookshelves look in the living room? And she said, yes. And she has the worst taste of anyone. So I, <laughs> knew.
2: <laughs>
1: I knew they had to go somewhere else. Ooh. And it's not that she actually has bad taste. It's that her taste differs from mine pretty radically. And I think that's true with kids. Quite often, kids want more yep. and ostentatious and experimental. And, and they haven't refined their taste yet. They're simply grasping to figure out what they do like. And so when you see a picture, which if you're watching the video version of this, you'll see it on the screen here. It's still pretty simple. We have a couch there, a pillow, which by the way, I did this video. We never released it, Jordan, because we didn't release that podcast episode. It was called uh, Timeless Simplicity. And and one of the things in there was four things I own that I hate. And one of those things is this damn throw pillow that we have. Uh I hate it, but my wife and daughter both demand that we have it and so it's not that i actually hate it but i desire their desire Mm. yeah and so i want what they want as well i've had to make peace with that because if i live by myself i wouldn't have a a throw pillow i would go without it and yet Mm. for them they get immense value from it and to tell you the truth
2: sometimes so do i yeah and it's so, just a slippery slope. I have seen people as they get older, one throw pillow turns into two, <laughs> then turns into ten, then you can't get into the bed. So it's a, <laughs> it's just a dangerous game. The throw pillow, it's a, da- it's a drug. You know? My boundary is one, literally. <laughs> okay, that's it's it. okay, one okay, yeah. throw
1: pillow for the three yeah. of us, and
2: now we fight over it. If you see a second one, then start worrying. If just one day there's a second <laughs> throw pillow, because it's just going to go <laughs> to disaster. I just move out that day. Yes, yes,
4: you could leave. <laughs> Hey, get as many throw pillows as you need, man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Alabama,
1: do we have any questions or comments from our Patreon live stream?
3: We sure do. We have a question from Jessica. How do you find the best way to heal from your childhood traumas carried into your adulthood? Specifically, how do you find what works?
1: It's interesting to me, Pete, because we often think of the way to deal with our trauma. I've been watching Better Call Saul recently. Professor Sean and I were talking about this, but it's the perfect portrait of the average consumer, consumerist, who represses their trauma by heaping more obligations and things and material possessions and status or whatever, ostensible status. He looks like a clown to the outside viewer, but to him, he feels as though more and more and more allows me to hide the trauma We're never
4: able to let go of it if we hide it. There's a story of this young man that was really interested in prayer. And so one day he tried the prayer techniques of one religion. The next day, the prayer techniques of a different religion and so on. Like, you know, 45 different techniques over 45 different days. And he ran into a monk and began to boast about all the different prayer techniques he said. And he says, the monk says to him, you're like a man who just keeps his feet in the water, but never dies in, never immerses himself There's something to be said about what you discover when you're willing to take one thing and immerse yourself into it non dogmatically. And so I think, you know, Derek Sivers also said this about cities. He says there are things you discover about cities or new towns by actually living there for a while than just by visiting it. There's a form of local knowledge that you simply can't gather merely by talking to locals about where you should eat. If you plant your feet in that town for a while, you begin to develop a relationship to the environment that gives you a different sort of understanding. And so what I would say is you have to be experimental in order to discover what works for you. You have to be willing to try out new things, but I would encourage you to try out one thing at a time and stick with it for a while and evaluate how that makes you feel. You know, try something for a couple of months and as long as what you're trying is not contributing to self-harm, as long as it's not dangerous, see where that gets you. And then if it doesn't work, Try something different, but that's all I would say on that. One way
2: of defining trauma is uh, a trauma is okay. Well, one or two. The, the The standard way of thinking of a trauma is it's a too muchness. Something has happened that is that overwhelms your ability to symbolize. So, yeah, some a, an event or something or an internal event. So you hear an argument, but you can't. You don't have the conceptual tools. Or the experiential tools to be able to put it into words, so it's a rock of unsymbolized uh, dimension within you. Um, and then the another way to think about trauma, which is more in line with what I was talking about earlier, is trauma always, to some extent, is connected with the desire of the other, the sum which you cannot conceptualize that you that that is both attractive and repuls and repellent, and one of the things one can do as because we all then in a sense there's there's traumas that happen to us and there's the trauma that is us there's something inherently traumatic about childhood because we don't have the conceptual tools to understand the others desire to understand what's going on so even if even if you have the perfect childhood you will have you will have a sense of a trauma that is that is being human and if if those traumas are damaging one's life you're damaging your ability to love and work uh relationships whatever um it's always good to try to find someone a, th- a psychotherapist psychoanalyst and be able to start to put into words to start to to symbolize and to try to kind of like kind of get a purchase on that experience um and that can
4: relieve the trauma so that's just just a couple of thoughts on trauma <laughs> And For me, I, I've known people personally who've tried it once and the first person they met with, it just didn't work. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. a good experience. But then maybe that second, third time, different person, it just works really well. So, you know, be willing to give, you know, more than one person, more than one tool to try. All right, y'all, before we
1: get to our added value segment, we just did a three-hour conversation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Peter Rollins. I want to acknowledge you, Peter, for being here. I want to encourage folks to check out your podcast. It's called The Fundamentalists, and they can check out your Patreon as well, yeah. patreon.com slash Rollins, or find all of his work, his social media, his YouTube, and everything else at peterrollins.com. Real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing going on in the life of the minimalists. Let's describe this to Peter in a way that will resonate with him because what we're doing here is we're we're doing something called Sunday Symposium. And we're doing this once a month in Los Angeles. You were at our last Los Angeles event. It was an amazing event. This gathering of people, some really vulnerable, open, honest questions. And so we want to recreate that in a way. TK has been out on tour with us and we've done a bunch of different cities together. Ryan and I have done ten different tours over the last twelve years. And what we really, what we realized there is that sense of community, connection, meaning, per- purpose. When we break down the walls of the the glowing screen, the glowing screen's nice. It enables us to communicate with a lot of people. But this goes a step further. And so, TK, if you were to explain the Sunday Symposium to Peter to try to entice him to maybe come to our second
4: or third one. He, maybe he can be our special guest there. What would you tell him? It's like going to church without everything you hate about going to church. When people go to church, you can't really define that by just one thing, right? Is it the sermon or the homily? Yeah, it's about that. There's somebody that's gonna do some talking about life and maybe a little philosophy and a little comedy. Is it about the people that are there? Yeah, there's gonna be some of that and some opportunity to connect with them. You know, um, it, it's it, is it about the music and the singing? Yeah, there's going to be some of that, but you can't reduce it to any one of those things because if you do, all you got is a lecture, or all you got is a concert, or all you got is a stand-up routine. It's it's the magic that happens when you bring people together with a combination of structure and spontaneity, and say, "Here's what we're going to do, but we're going to do it together, playfully, with an effort to see what we can discover." And this is born out of a out of a need to, you know, get out of our homes and have a reason to go out, which is what we're all looking for, but without having to rely on conventional excuses. You know, I often think of, you know, men getting together and going to the bar to watch sports is just a way to say, I love you, brother, without being so direct about it. And sometimes we want to say, hey, I love you, brother, or I want to connect with you, sister. And the only way we have to do it is be like, let's go to the bar. Yep. Let's go to the shopping mall let's go to a movie and we both stare at the same screen, but we never say anything to each other. We want to give people a space where they can come to and do those things and be as direct as they want to be, but also be as indirect as they want to be.
1: Yeah. P- Peter, we're doing these once a month. We're calling them Sunday symposiums. or are Sundays at noon. And uh, we'd love for you to join us at one oh, of yeah. them. So Heck we're soliciting yeah. you live on Absolutely. air. Absolutely. To see if we can get you there. Now, <laughs> the first one we announced uh, is August twenty. It filled up in an hour, so wow. uh, we have free tickets or purchase tickets if you want to help us pay for the venue. It's at a beautiful venue. Uh, this guy named Jamie and his wife they own. It. It's called Dynasty Typewriter, downtown Los Angeles. Filled up in an hour, but get yourself on the wait list so you can hear about the future events. We're going to do this every month where you show up and we. You called it a uh, uh, church without religion in a way, right? Because although it's religious in another sense, yes. this is the, something that Pete taught me is the religion the the root of that is uh liturgy or ligament to bind things together what do you love about the live events
2: oh yeah and i yeah i i started off with live events before i started writing books bringing people together um i'll say yeah one thing is if if we could do this stuff without art and music and community that would be great i would say don't don't meet up you know whatever but the problem is, we we do need arts and music and spoken word in order to help us. And so we basically we're liturgical creatures. There's the old story about this guy who thinks uh, thinks he's um, seed, literally thinks he's seed on the ground, and he goes to a psychoanalyst. And after a year of psychoanalysis, he realizes he's not seed. He's a human being, right? A human being, and he leaves. And uh, about a month later, he's comes back and he's knocking on the analyst's door. The analyst opens the door. The guy's crying. He says, "What's wrong?" He says, "Well, my next door neighbor's got chickens, and I'm terrified they're going to eat me." And he says, "But you know you're not seed. You know you're a human being." And he says, "I know that, but do the chickens know? Right? <laughs> I, you know, I know like there's there's no ghosts, right? But uh, but I but I act as if there is whenever I hear a creak at night. I know a car won't make make me more attracted to the opposite sex or fulfill me in some way, but the advertisers believe it. Um, You know, we believe through the other often. Like, you know, you might not believe in Santa Claus, but as long as your kids believe in Santa Claus, you get the pleasure of the belief in it, right? We're creatures who can be caught up in stuff. So, uh, one more story. It's very quickly. This guy, Seamus, who goes to the pub and he's drinking beer and he always orders four pints of Guinness. And then one day he comes into the pub and he orders three pints of Guinness. And The guy says, listen, don't mean to pry, Seamus, but you always buy four pints of Guinness, drink them in and go home. This week you buy three, what's going on? Oh, he says, says, I've got a father and I've got like uh, two brothers, um, all different parts of the world. And so I have a drink for my brothers, my father and myself. But he said, recently my father passed away, you know, so I still have a drink for the living, you know, my two brothers and myself. The guy goes, oh, sorry for your loss. So anyway, Seamus keeps doing this. And about six months later, he buys uh, two pints of Guinness. Guy says, listen, I don't want to pry, but something happened to one of your brothers. And Seamus says, oh, no, no. He says, no, no, not at all. He says, doctor's orders. I've had to stop drinking. Right? <laughs> now, the, the, idea, you know, the idea is that you are the ironic gesture. You're doing the very thing that you don't think you're doing, right? We can think that we're free from this frenetic pursuit, but still be caught up in it. And so what you need to do is, in a sense, surround yourself in a liturgical structure in which people enact that freedom through comedy and music and spoken word. And we come together and we create what could be called a TAS, a temporary autonomous zone, a space in which we live as though we are freed from this frenetic pursuit, just a theatrical performance. We act as if... And as we leave that space, if we do that every week and every month and we do that for a long period of time, eventually we find that we can incarnate it. So yeah,
1: Well, come join our Taz. Mm. It's Uh, sundaysymposium.com. You can get on the wait list right now. We'll let you know as soon as the tickets, both free and paid tickets, open up. You're welcome to contribute or you're welcome to attend for free. It's limited to 200 people. We're trying to keep this relatively small at first. And so... You're welcome to join us sundaysymposium.com for our added value this week to wrap things up this book is what introduced me to Schopenhauer and it's two books in one the wisdom of life and counsels and maxims i'm just going to read a one line sentence so we've we've spent the last 3 hours talking about and around schopenhauer about misery about philosophy about pessimism about trauma and so much more and what I loved about his work is it blended the Eastern philosophy and the Western philosophy for the first time. And he seems a bit harsh at first, but some, something about that harshness sort of drew me to it. So this is a line from page 14 of The Wisdom of Life. Men are not influenced by things, but by their thoughts about things. And doesn't that summarize what we talk about perfectly?
2: and can I tell a story that sums it up I think is that okay Or we're we coming Please. to a close Please. aren't we um, I, to sum up then Schopenhauer I just thought of the stories you're talking about this guy Seamus who you may have heard of he um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh, you know him yeah. I met him <laughs> you yeah. met him yeah well due to an unfortunate set of circumstances he finds himself living in Los Angeles right oh no and, yeah oh no <laughs> And he finds himself hanging out with a spiritual community, right? Typical LA spiritual community. So they're into vegan diets, raw food, they're into psychedelics, and they're into, of course, polyamory, right? Um, And Seamus finds all of this interesting, but particularly the polyamory. He says, you mean I can have a wife and a girlfriend? And they're all laughing at Seamus. going, yes, absolutely. He's like, oh, that's crazy. He says, I'll have to talk to my wife about this, right? Mm. So he goes off and he's away for about six months. He comes back to the spiritual community and the leader in a patronizing kind of way says, oh, Seamus, did you ever talk to your wife about polyamory? He says, I did. I did. And you know what? She was delighted. She loved the idea. She says, now I've got a wife and I've got a girlfriend. And the community gather around. They pat him on the back. He said, oh, it's great. He said, what's your favorite thing about it? Oh, says Seamus. He says, it's great. He says, now I can tell my wife that I'm with my girlfriend and my girlfriend that with my wife and I can be left alone. (laughs) (laughs) That's the secret. In LA, there is this... Demand to have pleasure and excess and enjoyment and stability of, you know, a, a relationship and the fun of sexual, whatever. And demand, demand, demand. What Seamus found was a way in the whole, the God of the demand to enjoy, the God of the demand to enjoy in LA, find a way to carve out a space to just be. That's kind of Schopenhauer in a nutshell.
1: We'll put a link to this book in the show notes for our final added value this week. I stumbled across this band on Instagram and they're called Dwellers. And this song is called You're Gonna Cry. And it's really a song about the fundamental okayness of misery. I love this line from the song. You're gonna cry, we're gonna die, but it's all right. And I think that sums up this whole episode today. So enjoy the song from Dwellers, It's called You're Gonna Cry. Or if you're watching the video version on YouTube, you can check out the link somewhere above my left shoulder. That's our show for today. Simpletons, on behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Peter Rollins, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let ought to be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all.
0: Old friends always laughing We were trying to steal the liquor From my parents' cabinets Oh, it never works, it never worked up front from